0: You APG it's the airline pilot guy airline pilot guy episode 378
1: yeah, in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. hello
0: you're listening to the airline pilot guy show the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host captain Jeff broadcasting live from studio 1a at APG headquarters outside Atlanta Today's show is recorded on the 7th of June, 2019. In today's episode, the a Delta Airlines passenger is mauled by a fellow passenger's emotional support dog, a warning from the FAA that wing parts on more than 300 Boeing 737s may have been manufactured improperly, and updates on some recent airplane accidents. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, Dats on D-Day Part 1. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 378 is ready for pushback.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast, and I'm a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier based in Atlanta, GA, and joining me today from across the pond in his house in the beautiful English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, captain for an international airline
3: based in London, Captain Nick and occasional podcaster with BTUK. Hi, how's things going, Jeff? Great. Feels how's like I haven't seen crazy. you in ever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, lovely to see, yeah, it's great. Uh, just finished the show with BTUK, looking forward to ours because we have more fun.
2: Yes, we do. And we're all glad you're here to join us, as well as our second guest host, from the studio near the Concord-Covered Bridge in Smyrna, Georgia. He's a barbecue master, a motorcycle rider, a pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, great to be
4: here, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick. Good to see you both, and looking forward to a fun Friday night of APG. We are,
2: as well. Can't get enough. Can't get enough. Can't get enough. Love you, baby. Um, Seems like ages since we were on last time, doesn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, it was. It was like uh, almost almost two weeks, about a week and a half, a little bit more than a week and a half. Yeah, what well, a week ago Tuesday. So, yeah, yeah. week ago Tuesday, and today is the seventh of June, which is a Friday, and uh, you, uh, we didn't play the intro for Miss Stephanie because she is still at work or perhaps en route from a location north of Charlotte, and we're hoping that she'll be leaving soon and arriving back home soon. And when she does, then we'll uh, go ahead and introduce her and find out what's going on with her. But in the meantime, we're gonna go ahead and catch up with uh, the three of us here. And uh, let's see, Dana, what have you, uh, are you still on vacation? No, sir, I was on,
4: I flew a four day trip last weekend. Um, had the wonderful opportunity to have my lovely bride uh, accompany me up to the uh, wonderful city, Madison, Wisconsin.
2: Oh, I love Madison.
4: It's a great overnight, and uh, I, I really didn't advertise a whole lot. I know we have a couple of our favorite listeners up there that uh, would like to come meet us, but uh, I got in real, real late Saturday night, um, about 12.30 our time about eleven forty, eleven thirty, Central Time PM, and then spent most of the day and just decided to walk around with my, with my lovely Julie and, and explore the town. I had never walked over to the campus uh, of the University of Wisconsin. Uh, very nice campus right there on the lakefront, um, and explored uh, explored it a little bit, and we just uh, <clears throat> had uh, some really good uh, burgers for lunch. And that was about it. So she had no problem getting to and from. She actually got first class, heading up to uh, wow up to Madison. That was that's unheard of these days. Coming back, she was a little more uncomfortable in, in business in in uh, economy comfort, but that's not so bad. She had an aisle seat, but honestly, it was the first time she has flown with me. As a, uh, as she did come out with me on one trip when I was on OE when I was captain. Now, this is her first trip that she's been able to join me, as uh, me being the captain on my own. So that was uh, very, very rewarding. Was she for scared. Me. She was petrified. <laughs> she knew, she knew that I was going to be flying the airplane. She was sitting there, oh no. with white knuckles and shaking her boots. I did embarrass her though. Yeah, because Good. I, I, I took a little a little, play, a little uh, snippet out of the Jeff uh, Nielsen playbook. And that is I go and I talk to my passengers. I actually stand up and t- talk to the first class passengers face to face and introduce myself and thank them for flying with us and crack a couple of uh, minor fun jokes. I don't and do then that. I, well, you know, yeah, well, I always say like it's 16 degrees Celsius.
2: Yeah, that's something extra that you do. I I just stand at the cockpit door and talk to the whole. The
4: whole cabin. Oh, so after I talk to my first class passengers, then after I do that, then I come and I make the PA standing up in front of everybody. So I address the the first class passengers first, thanking them for their business, their loyalty, and then I come back and I make the PA. So when I was up in first class, I made mention that uh, uh, my wife Julie is on the airplane. And uh, embarrassed her and introduced her to everybody up front. So, um, other than that, an uneventful uh, four-day trip. It was uh, a good thing uh, that she was sitting in first
2: class. Why All is that? Free drinks, because I'm sure that helped her nerves. Uh, yeah,
4: <laughs> it sure did. <laughs>
2: of so course, okay. she didn't. She doesn't. You know, she never
4: takes advantage of it. Oh. If it was me, by the I time we got up advantage. to Madison, the, the airplane would have been out of Woodford. <laughs> her, she just had three glasses of wine. Mm-hmm. On a two, two and a half, well, of course, one on the ground and two in flight. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, you know. It's, that's not including not,
2: the bottle that she had on the way to the airport. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> you know, I wish Much. I had something that I could play. Oh, I do. There it is. There
4: you go. Yeah. So other than that, uh, just an uneventful, I uh, had a, an uneventful four day. All late night stuff. I had a Cleveland layover, which is a relatively short one. I think it was 12 hours. And then I had uh, went Madison and where else? Oh, Omaha. Went to Omaha, Nebraska. Again, real late to get up uh, in there, uh, about just before midnight local time. And then I uh, uh, spent oh, I'm most curious, of the
3: big be, Omaha being the name of one of the D-Day beaches, do they do anything special at Omaha, Nebraska? I'm assuming that's. Uh, the same place that they named the beaches on. Oh, just curious. Yeah, no. I um you know, Omaha, Utah. Um
2: Oh, is there, there more than one Omaha, is there? Well,
4: well no, well there probably
2: is, but uh it's probably named for the Nebraska one, Omaha Nebraska. Yeah, probably
4: oh, no, I didn't see anything special going on this past week. Oh, um, it's just uh it's the home of uh most people know Warren Buffett. Uh, that's where his um, Berkshire Hathaway is, is based. A lot of
2: good stuff. I've,
3: I've a pre-stalled Buffett, but I've never had a Warren Buffett.
2: <laughs> and we talked about Warren Buffett in Omaha. I think it was, was it the last show or the show before where we were talking about the dot-com thing or the, the companies that um, are there to track corporate jets and try to kind oh, of right. decide yeah, yeah, whether yeah. or not there's some kind of a deal brewing or whatever. Yeah,
3: that oil company, Petroleum Company, was mm-hmm. – uh, yeah, that's uh, interesting. Yep. So yeah. – um, you know, in-
2: for those that don't, <clears throat> go ahead. I'm
3: you sorry. know, Dan, I was just going to say, uh, I, I always hated bringing my wife uh, on a flight um, because one of the first times I did it, uh, we uh, were coming home from New York and uh, she had been sleeping. She came on the flight deck just as they were about to start serving breakfast and uh, she walked to the flight deck and immediately one of the engines failed. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honey,
3: I stay home yeah, next time. Please. Yeah, exactly. Right No, I you're just a, you're just bad luck for me. Uh, I don't need you to fly <laughs> in so me. many ways. <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: no, not no, probably no. the right thing to say.
3: <laughs> no, no, I, I know you did. wouldn't mean it. No, no, she wouldn't you, okay he doesn't listen to this show yeah good thing huh yeah
4: I <laughs> yeah. And, and, and unlike you i get nervous about having her on you know come out with us because you know if, if she can get there it's great i've left her sitting at the gate a couple times when i brought her in the past and ah. pushing back and yeah <laughs> watching the, the wife on here <laughs> waving bye-bye yeah Bye, honey.
2: that happened with good my luck. oldest daughter and my wife uh when my oldest daughter was like three years old um oh yeah you know And it was the first flight of the day. I figured there wouldn't be a problem. (laughs) Took them all darn day to get home. But anyway, that's a whole long story that I'm sure I've already told at least one time on the show. Um, So other than that, what else has been going on, Dana? Well, I was just going to say, you know, for those folks that are
4: not watching the actual podcast live, um, which is most of our listeners, I have uh, uh, I'm wearing the USS George H.W. Bush CVN number 77 in honor of our military, uh, because uh, this week, actually yesterday, was uh, the D-Day invasion uh, 75 years ago. So in honor of our our fallen heroes and our heroes that are still with us that got to uh, be over there in in the French and American president. uh, We're together and and, uh, and we're celebrating the uh, sacrifice. Celebration, I guess is really the wrong word. Uh, honoring their uh, sacrifice, uh, I am am as well in honoring them uh, in my own way that I can. So, uh, other than that, uh, yeah, I get some pretty bad news about my boat this past week. That's I'm just not going to talk about it. Okay. So, is it terminal? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. really, kind of is. So, um, okay. Well, I'm we'll glad bottom. we
2: had a chance to spend some time with her.
4: Yeah. Well, it's it's uh, I can't do anything with it um, right now. I'm stuck with this boat. Hmm. Well,
2: good thoughts going your way, Dano. hope that uh, you'll be able to resolve it eventually. I know it doesn't look so. very good right now, but okay. Oh.
4: That's, 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 that's <clears throat> stuff that's going on with me. But okay. other than that, uh, I'm on reserve the last two days. I actually put my name in the hat for a short call yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did not use me. So uh, I fully anticipate the rest of the month that I will be uh, flying quite a bit though.
2: Okay. Well, maybe I'll see you out there.
4: Maybe I'm. I am on call
2: Monday through Thursdays, basically. Okay. So that's good. Sweet. Well, I'll go ahead and go next uh, because I think uh, we'll end with Nick because he has some a lot of stuff to uh, tell us about, including a visit that he made uh, to uh, Duxford. Uh, but uh, for me, uh, since the last show, I. Let's see, I was on a trip on my last show, and then I was home for Saturday, Sunday, left on another four-day on Monday through Thursday. And uh, the, the, it was a treat not to have to carry my extra bag full of audio gear. And uh, so I just had my regular roller board and uh, uh, backpack and did uh, I did a lot of work uh, for, well, you know that uh, that training that was supposed to be finished by the 31st of May? Dana? Uh, well, yes. I, uh, yes, I finally ended up getting it finished, I think, on the second or third day of my trip in June, <laughs> because the real deadline is the end of June. Um, anyway, uh, so knock that out and some other things that go on behind the scenes uh, doing this podcast thing. And on the second, so it was a first night was just, it was tough. It was a tough trip, Dana. Did you see my trip? No, I didn't look at what you actually did. (laughs) So the first uh, day was one leg to Wichita. And the next day was two legs, Atlanta to Newark. The third day was Atlanta to Newark. And the last day was one leg home from Newark to Atlanta. So it was... uh, it was hard.
4: I, I'm glad people can't see what I'm doing, and uh, I'm telling you, you're, you're my number one friend.
2: Oh yeah, that's nice. Thank you. For yes, that.
4: I. I the, the advantages of being senior. Although this last trip, I have to say, was not. I had one, two, two, three. Oh, that's good. So it wasn't wasn't a terrible. Oh, that's trip. a decent trip. Yeah. It was a very good trip actually. But uh, I'm jealous. Mm. So I tend, I tend not to look at your stuff anymore because well, it just you know. Just I wants, can understand you not wanting up. to look
2: at my stuff because it would make you jealous. <laughs> like uh, no, your trip's not your night. Oh, the trip. Okay. Yes. Um, so more specifically. Let's go. Let's move on. Uh, so on the second Newark layover, I had the opportunity and pleasure to meet up with uh, some APGers, and uh, let me see here. I don't want to make. I want to make sure I get everybody's. Uh, name here, Jose Enrique, who is a new, I haven't met him before, and he's a relatively new listener. I think he said he started listening September of last year, and uh, Jonathan Alexandratos, who uh, everybody knows, he's been at several New York City um, meetups. Um, In fact, the first one was when Nick was there and I flew up from Atlanta and we had a big meetup at the Beer Authority, I think it was called, uh, in Manhattan. And uh, Jonathan was there for that uh, also uh, there for that one. And the one uh, with me just a couple of days ago, Tanya. And uh, so uh, it was the three of us, well, four of us. So it was uh, Jose Jonathan and Tanya and myself at PJ Carney's pub on 7th Avenue and 57th, maybe something like that. And uh, had a good, uh, a really good time. And And we didn't do any recording, so you don't have to, you know, listen to that. And because I didn't want to, uh, well, it was kind of noisy in there, so it would have been hard to really hear anything we were saying. But uh, we did uh, snap um, a selfie, and uh, we'll put that in the show notes, hopefully, if I remember to put that in there. Oh, there, Tanya's in our chat room. Woohoo, so much fun, 57th, uh, between 57th and 58th. And uh, Stephanie Plummer says, don't worry, HR is listening in. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. Mind your P's and Q's. Looks like Steph it has begun her journey home and looks like the uh, weather in that area of the country, northern Charlotte, is uh, not not very good. Not very good here in Atlanta either. Storming here. Anyway, um, so be safe, Steph, and we'll try to behave ourselves. Uh, let's see.
3: Not very hard. No. Trying, that is. Not behaving ourselves. Okay. Okay. Um, So, uh, what else? Mm,
2: That's pretty much it. I don't go back out again until Wednesday of next week, so I have several days off, which is nice. Um, And we have an update on Oshkosh. Uh, The t-shirt design is finalized, and I can't wait to share it with everybody. In fact, I'm going to share the design right now, if that's all right. You think that's all right, crew, for me to show the design of our shirt? Hello? Hello?
3: Uh, yeah, let's, let's do it. On. It looks brilliant. No, no. Oh. I, I had my foot on the mute switch, and I forgot to take it off. Can you believe it? How stupid I am I? I can't believe it. I used to fly airplanes.
2: <laughs> so I uh, have the um, the T-shirt. that This is going to be on the back of the T-shirt. It's going to be a dark uh, navy blue shirt with the Acme uh, Air logo on the front that everybody knows and loves. And uh, the person who designed that, Jim Mercado, also helped us with this design. And uh, so we were gonna tr- call it uh, like Osh, what was it? Osh Bash. And then we Osh Bash. Yes. Yeah. We learned quickly that uh, we couldn't do that because that there's uh, some organization that does Osh Bash, like and has been doing it at Oshkosh for quite a number of years. And so we decided. uh, Hopefully, nobody else is (laughs) doing this. And if you are, we do apologize. We didn't. We weren't aware of it. But uh, this is going to be Osh blast. So we are going to have a blast at Oshkosh. And uh, so Jim uh, came up with this beautiful design. And uh, if you're listening to the audio only, I'll put a uh, picture of the uh, art in the show notes and you can see it that way. And uh, I'll just briefly describe We could
3: it you. Uh, make it the show title and put it on the, we could do that. the show art.
2: Okay. That would be nice would and easy. That would be wouldn't cool, it, wouldn't it? it? Yeah. Okay. So you'll just look for the cover art uh, for this episode. And uh, if you have Overcast, by the way, I really highly recommend if you have, uh, I, I think they, they're only on iOS, but if you have an iOS machine, uh, an, an iPhone, and uh, you, you listen to a lot of podcasts um, down, do yourself a favor and download overcast, which I think is the best podcast client app, uh, in the world. And, uh, it, um, uh, I put in for, I have been doing this for a while, putting in uh, individual artwork for each episode that it essentially mirrors what you can see, uh, our artwork, uh, on the website for each of the shows. And, uh, and by the way, um, I've employed, uh, Nick's wonderful creative talent, uh, to help me with that. In fact, he's doing it the last couple of shows and they look fantastic. So much better than what I was doing. Uh, because, oh, rubbish.
3: I just well, got more time.
2: <laughs> no, because for me, it was like the last thing to do before I hit the publish button is to try to come up with a title and then some artwork to, you know, reflect the title. And by the time I got to that point, it was like, oh, uh, my brain was dead all my creativity is gone <laughs> and uh, you're uh, you're just knocking it out of the park. So uh, thank you for, uh, for helping me with that uh, anyway. So uh, if you have overcast uh, you, you'll see the individual episode artwork. And I believe that that's one of very few, if if not the only one that will actually do that. So, um, you know, take, take a look at that overcast app. I think it's free. And then I, I think you can buy a pro version for like a couple bucks and, uh, Marco, I believe is the uh, guy that uh, does the app and, and Oh, one of the new features on overcast is a really cool thing. I haven't used it yet, but you can uh, actually like take a snippet of whatever thing you're listening to on overcast. And I think it's like a minute long snippet. And then you can use that and, and upload it to Twitter or Facebook or whatever, uh, and promote, like if there's something really funny on the show that you want to share with somebody else, you can do that uh, very, very easily. I'm told, Again, I have not used it myself yet, but anywho, uh, enough uh, promotion for for Overcast. But uh, it's a it's a fantastic um, iOS podcasting app. I highly recommend it. Um, so uh, check out the artwork for our show number three seventy eight, and there's the T-shirt. It's basically, of course, you got to have something to do with beer, right? So it's a beer glass with uh, some some a nice head on it. And, uh, very some, cloudy. Yeah, very cloudy, and it's Looking. gold, and uh, Osh Blast in kind of retro font on the front of it. And, it, of course, it has wings because, you know, beer and wings, right? And uh, not chicken wings, but uh, like regular wings, very similar to the wings on our Acme Air logo. And uh, at the top, it says, I got Oshkoshed with the APG crew at Osh Blast 2019. And then at the bottom, Airline Pilot Guys Show. Excuse me. Airline. Yeah. Airline pilot guy show. And uh, so I've set it up already on Teespring through the uh, the website. You can get there. However, I haven't actually activated it yet. And the way we're going to do this is and we'll have more details when this actually goes live. Uh, we are going to um, for those of you who are actually going to be at Oshkosh and you want your shirt when you get there. Uh, so you'll only you'll pay the lowest price, whatever. I'm gonna I am i do not know what that price is going to be yet. So I'm I'm th- I'm hoping it's going to be ten dollars, fifteen dollars, not a lot. Um, and you won't have to pay for any shipping or anything else because uh, Nick and I will be the shippers. We'll have uh, the box of shirts with us in the in the car slash RV on the way up there, and then we'll distribute the shirts um, once we are at Oshkosh. And so we'll have a way for you to let us know what you want, sizes, numbers, that kind of thing. And, uh, I think that, um, uh, Liz is going to help, uh, organize that, take the orders and such, and then, uh, we'll figure out a way to get it, uh, get you to uh, pay us for it once we're at Oshkosh and the Teespring uh, method, uh, which will, will go live on the website, hopefully very soon, uh, will be your way. If you're not able to join us at Oshkosh, you can, you can order the shirt anyway and wear it with pride. And, uh, you can, and and in addition to a regular t-shirt, there are, um, other options such as a, uh, a woman's, uh, t-shirt, a little different style, uh, have a, like a comfort shirt, a premium shirt and a regular, you know, unisex male, uh, t-shirt. And we also have, um, a couple of different tank tops, including a woman's tank top, uh, which I think that, uh, Steph will uh, look great in when she is running the 5k on Saturday. And, uh, so, uh, here, let me take this off the screen because you don't need to look at that anymore. So we're very excited to say the no. least. No, oh, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to scare you. <laughs> it's my face. <laughs> um, so, um, we're excited about that again, hopefully soon we'll uh, have that up and running for you to order your shirts. And that's both for the U S and the UK. Um, I'm not sure if you're outside of either of those locations, I'm not sure if you, you can still buy stuff and have it shipped or not. Um, not clear on that yet, but we'll let you know. And, uh, um, yeah, Nick, I hope that you can pick it up in person too. Nick Camacho, we're going to be talking about you later in the show very soon. Actually, I think, um, And uh, what else? Uh, As far as the plan is concerned between uh, Captain Nick and I, Captain Nick is going to be flying into Atlanta. I think I've already mentioned this uh, before. Um, Hopefully the weekend, uh, like the 13th, 14th, we're not sure yet. There might be something going on that may affect that. But at some point, Nick and I are going to get in the car and drive up, hopefully on Monday, uh, to uh, Dayton, Ohio, to see the U.S. Air Force Museum. Probably we'll do that on Tuesday, the 13, 14, 15th, 16th. Uh, but on the 15th, when we're driving up, we're going to uh, meet up with uh, Greg Peterson, I believe, who uh, works for, and and uh, sorry, cover up your child's ears, but this is the actual name of his company, uh, Big Ass Fans, uh, or Big Donkey Fans, <laughs> if you'd prefer. Um, and uh, so it's a real thing. Yeah, check it out, uh, bigassfans.com. You can look at the, uh, the Big Ass Fans on uh, from his company, and uh, he lives in Lexington, so that's right on the way um by the way we're gonna be we're gonna be r- driving right by London, Nick it's kind of crazy, yeah, you'd think that you you wouldn't pass London on the way up to uh Lexington and Cincinnati and Dayton, but you do and uh <laughs> yeah, so uh maybe we'll get a picture of you in London, Kentucky um we're gonna meet up with uh, Greg and uh, he is either depending on our schedule going to have coffee with us or if we have enough time we'll stop and he may give us a quick tour of the company and uh, hopefully ending up in Dayton that night Monday night and then as I said you US Air Force Museum on Tuesday and then maybe leave on Tuesday uh, Wednesday at the latest head up to Chicago and pick up the RV so there you go that's what we have planned tentatively uh, for now and um Anything to add, Nick?
3: No, no, other than uh, plans change, but we'll do mm-hmm. our best to stick to that.
2: Right. Yeah, that's that's our, you know, as you said, that's plan A or B for now. Could be plan C or F or H by the time we get around to doing this. All right. Now, I noticed something. Oh, by the way, if you want to keep track of all these meetups and goings-ons, uh, please check out the APG community calendar. You can find that on the website, APG or com slash calendar. And you can also uh, be a slacker, an APG slacker by joining Slack. Hillel will tell us how to do that toward the end of the show. And that's all I'm going to say for now until I think of something else. So I have something to say. Oh yeah. Well, I'm looking at the video and I noticed that uh, you have some strange man sitting next to you in your podcast studio, Dana. And he looks familiar to me.
4: Yeah, I don't know if you've known know him or have met him before. No, actually, no, you haven't. <laughs> it, it seems like a very nice gentleman, so I'm going to introduce him. Uh, sitting next just don't to me turn your
2: back to him, Dana. I'm just warning you.
4: Oh, my God. Well, I have a shotgun sitting right next to me just <laughs> okay. in case. So. It's okay. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, anyways, uh, I got a text, um, actually an email uh, this morning. And I looked at the email and it was uh, a gentleman asked me if I'm going to be available tomorrow in Atlanta to meet up and I said okay yeah great tomorrow saturday you know have no plans and I said yeah well wait I- wait, wait wait a minute
2: wait, hang on I'm going to check my my uh, messages to see if I got one of those texts as well
4: no, he said he huh, didn't want to I, see you. I don't
2: see anything from Yeah, he didn't, he didn't want to
4: see you this time. He <laughs> said he just wants to meet the infamous Captain Dana. Okay. But be my stupidity, of course, I looked at it, and I read it this morning and said tomorrow, but he sent it last night. Ah. So then it dawned on me, ah, he wants to meet up Friday night, not Saturday night. And so, I, you know, we just started discussing the fact that we're doing the live recording and I mentioned it, to, of course, to you and see if it was okay with you, Jeff. And then I checked with the lovely uh, Brian. Apparently, you didn't
2: understand me when I said no. I, damn it, I don't,
4: <laughs> I, I'm just like, I'm just like, uh I must have had too many bourbons already. Because you yeah, know I'm this trying. David
2: Ogden guy, I said yes. Please don't let him anywhere near your house or your wife, especially.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I know, no kidding. And she's all she's all excited. She's like, "Wow, oh, we have a guest coming over. Cool." Yeah. All right. And the second question out of her mouth, without even uh, on the text, was, uh, "Does he have a place to stay tonight?" I'm like, uh, "You haven't even met the guy yet, and you already want to sleep over with him? What, you know what's going on?" Oh, wow. Here? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> man. <laughs> but so no. uh, <laughs> got the got the email and I said well here's my number text me and we'll, we'll get it together and we figured it out and he texted me this afternoon he's driving up to Atlanta and that's when it dawned on me that it was Friday not Saturday so I I, uh, I went ahead and said come on over so sitting right next to me David Ogden well, let's so hear from I'm him, him and yeah, we'll let him say hello
5: well hello Jeff uh good to see you again and uh you know I I, I figured that you you did uh you, you had had enough of me here recently with the with the Houston meetup yeah, so right. I didn't <laughs> I didn't wanna, <laughs> didn't want to oppose on you uh, or impose on you too much but uh, wanted to reach out to Dana since I was uh, traveling for work here in in Georgia and and I'm staying overnight I get to fly home really early tomorrow morning but uh, wanted to uh, pop by and, and, and meet Dana if he was available because I had not had the opportunity to uh, to meet him.
2: Well, yeah. it's going to be a great, uh, experience for sure.
4: Yeah. Um, great. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad he reached out. I mean, and, and I did ask him, I said, do you want to meet Jeff? And he pretty much said, uh, <laughs> uh, he had just oh. seen you. So <laughs> exactly what he just said, probably sick of, <laughs> <laughs> of seeing him. So, yeah. um, anyways, great, great to meet him. He's, uh,
2: well, I'm shows glad up you're here, the
4: house and um, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to have
2: him. Great to have you, uh, David. And uh, please feel free to chime in on anything you want. If you can uh, add some context or some uh, whatever,
5: uh, to... awesome. Well, th- thank you so much. And the the one thing I do want to let you know is uh, I was down in Macon, and while I was down there, I took a uh, afternoon to go down to the uh, museum that is at Warner Robins Air Force Base, and and saw a couple of airplanes that that you might have uh, had some experience on. Got some pictures of a uh, C-141 down there yep. and uh, saw a, uh, a T-37, which I believe uh, you, you might have flown at one point in your flight training. I
2: have. I was an instructor. And
5: uh, I, I saw a, a T-38 while we were down there. I so got to uh, experience that? a couple of the aircraft that you have uh, touched in your career.
2: I thought maybe you were going to say something about uh, that was the um, – Basically, the origin ground zero for the uh, Huff Deland crop dusters uh, before they moved to Monroe, Louisiana, I believe, wasn't it, Macon? uh,
4: Yes, I'm 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 almost ninety five percent sure. Yeah, it
2: has some kind of roots uh, down that way in uh, in Georgia. Uh, So a lot of the history of Acme Airlines uh, is tied into that area of Georgia. So, I thought you were going to say something like uh, the Huff Deland. Whatever that airplane was, it was like an old biplane or high-wing, single-engine, uh, radial-engine airplane, and that you were going to ask me if I flew if if, if I flew that, because that would be funny because you know I'm old. Yeah, well, <laughs> funny to everybody else but me. Um, okay, oh, well, great to have you, David. And uh, so let's uh, switch over to Nick. You have the floor, sir.
3: Well, I don't need the whole floor, so okay, Just well, a little part bit of, of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, the uh, the last week has been uh, quite fascinating here uh, in the UK because, of course, it's uh, the 6th of June, the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings. And being the 70- 75th anniversary, a lot of efforts being uh, made in the UK and France in particular to um, create uh, a real sense of remembrance and uh, a feeling of gratitude for the Few uh, survivors from the Second World War who are still alive, those wonderful veterans. Um, And part of that has been an amazing uh, accomplishment by a a bunch of uh, um, wonderful uh, C-47s, you know, the Douglas Dakota, the American military version of the DC-3, who have flown all the way over from the States Uh, to the United Kingdom, uh, which in itself is a a pretty epic journey. Uh, And they landed at uh, the Imperial uh, War Museum at Duxford and uh, assembled there and then uh, conducted a series of flights around the UK, uh, some of which included parachute drops, uh, before they participated in the actual D-Day remembrance, the uh, anniversary by flying reenactment parachutists over to France, Drop them uh, in and around uh, the beaches uh, uh, in France. An absolutely fabulous uh, occasion. Now, one of our listeners, Nick Komachko, has been uh, part of the team that uh, is involved in bringing Betsy's Biscuit Bomber, uh, a fantastic C 47, uh, over. And uh, I was lucky enough to get an invitation uh, from Nick to go up and meet him and uh, look over the aircraft at Duxford uh, just a few days before they uh, embarked on uh, the major flights they did over to France. Uh, And uh, I managed to make some recordings, uh, a little snippet, just a taster now, and then uh, I've got two plane tales, uh, one of which we'll hear on this show and one on the next show, uh, with um, the voices of... Uh, Nick, and the uh, chief pilot, Sherman, uh, who were kind enough to uh, give me some of their time, and I'll be able to put some of the photographs I took of uh, Betsy's Biscuit Bomber uh, on the Plane tails page of our website uh, when we publish those. Um, so that's really quite remarkable, uh, and I think we've got a little bit of audio right now, don't we, Jeff?
2: Yes, the uh, C-47 meetup. With uh, Nick Camacho at Duxford? Is that it? About six minutes? Hello? Hey. Can you hear me?
3: Well, I can now, but you oh. just dropped out for me.
2: Oh, okay. I said it's the uh, C-47 meetup with Nick Camacho at Duxford. six. That's, that's the one, minutes. please. All right. I'll play it
3: right now. Hi, Jeff. I was lucky enough to be at Duxford yesterday to join friend of the show and longtime listener Nick Camacho there. He's one of the pilots of Betty's Biscuit Bomber, which is taking part in the Dax Over Normand, the commemorative squadron of C 47s. Many of these venerable aircraft have flown all the way over from the United States to take part in a number of fly paths and reenactment parachute drops. That are happening during this year's 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings. I first asked Nick how he got to become one of our listeners.
1: Yeah, we. Uh, I listened to a lot of. I've been listening to podcasts for probably 2009, maybe. Uh, I started listening to Jeff uh, actually after Steph was on uh, the Airplane Geeks because I had been listening to them for a while and I heard her on there, and kind of got turned on to Jeff that way. Um, and so my dad is not a technology guy at all, not a podcast guy. He can't even, uh, you know, figure out how to use. He struggles sometimes with the voicemail on his iPhone. But uh, since we spend a lot of time together in the hangar, I've started playing some of my aviation-related podcasts in there to try to uh, just to, so I can kind of keep up with things. And he's kind of taken a keen interest in uh, the Airline Pilot Guy show and you and Jeff and everybody involved, so he really likes it.
3: Now, we're going to hear more from Nick over the next few plane towns but I wanted to know what Betsy would be doing during the D-Day events over
1: the upcoming days. So, uh, today was supposed to be our big day at Duxford. We did a bunch of flying yesterday, getting all the appropriate European permissions, and some of our pilots had to get formation uh, proficiency checkouts for the CAA. Um, we spent a lot of time before we got here doing formation practice, and a lot of our guys were formation qualified in the United States, but... Had to do a couple things to get the European authorities to allow us to do what we're trying to do. Today was supposed to be our our big Duxford day. Uh, Unfortunately, we just got back from the first flight of the day, which was supposed to be a uh, paratrooper drop where we were were dropping about 110 jumpers, I think. Uh, And unfortunately, the wind was out of limits for the jumpers. So we got up and we got six airplanes going around the circuit, but uh, didn't get anybody out. Uh, I think they're working on trying to uh, make something happen tonight to get some of the jumpers out of the airplanes. And then tomorrow, which will actually be June 5th, weather permitting, our plan is to fly across the channel early in the morning. We'll land over on the French side, uh, unload uh, our non-essential crew and all of our gear. We'll load the airplane up with our first set of jumpers. We'll take off from France, kick out the first set of jumpers over their, uh, the D- their DZ, and then fly the airplane back to Duxford In the early afternoon. We'll load our second set of jumpers from Duxford and we'll fly the second set of jumpers back across the channel and do the second drop on their DZ. I believe that the first drop is going to be on the U.S. beaches and the second drop is going to be on the British beaches, I think. After that, on the 6th, uh, June 6th, the actual uh, commemoration day, I don't think we're doing any paratrooper drops. However, the American contingent that's over here Um, and some of the European airplanes, I think, are all going to be part of a uh, big formation flyover of the uh, American Cemetery in Normandy. That's been a lot of work because there are some very important people that are going to be on the ground there. So there's been a lot of security hoops and that sort of thing to jump through. And we actually did a, uh, the guys did a practice flight of that yesterday. Um, I was on the ground uh, trying to get some video of them, but they sent up a a 14-ship flight with... uh, four Vicks, and then two trailers at the back, and they all went up and basically practiced their join-up and then fly over the cemetery. There's also a cemetery in Cambridge, an American cemetery in Cambridge here, so they basically imitated that whole flight. And So that's what we're doing on the 6th. And then the 7th and 8th, we're doing more uh, paratrooper jumps uh, throughout the French villages and the DZs uh, associated with the Normandy uh, event. And then sometime around uh, the 9th or 10th, Uh, many of the aircraft will transition to Germany and then be involved in Germany in uh, some Berlin Airlift commemoration events.
3: Now, that's quite a calendar of events. Now Nick is a great fan of the show, but has a treat for those who are interested in seeing
1: more of what uh, the crew of Betsy got up to during their visit. Personally, I I enjoy all the uh, content that you guys put out, you and Captain Jeff and Steph and Dana and all the other people involved and so uh, it's just a privilege for me and I'm just I'm just excited that I can give a little bit back to that and um, the only other thing I would say is that uh, we have a my other main job besides flying on this trip has been putting a bunch of cameras on the airplane and taking them off so if anybody else is really interested they can go look at our Facebook page and I'm also trying to do a little bit on YouTube and everything but we have a Facebook page It's called uh, Goonie Bird Group-Betsy's Biscuit Bomber. So if you search either one of those, you should be able to find us. And we're trying to put a whole bunch of really cool, kind of unique stuff up there uh, for this trip that we'll probably never be able to do or see again. So I would say maybe check that out. It'll be kind of neat.
3: Well, it was an enormous treat to get to meet Nick and uh, see the aircraft. And I'm going to be putting some uh, pictures up. And, of course, there are plane tales to follow. So I'm very excited about that. And uh, many thanks indeed to uh, Nick and all the rest uh, of the crew of uh, Betsy's Biscuit Bar.
2: Kind of getting hungry for some biscuits.
3: (laughs) I know. Great name for uh, an aircraft. Um, and Nick was such a generous host, uh, so very kind of you, uh, Nick. I know you're in the chat room. Thank you very much indeed for uh, accommodating me. I know how, uh, what a busy guy you are now and how many extra jobs uh, you seem to uh, get involved with in helping to organize uh, the, uh, all the flights and uh, running around. So having me on there on top of that was very kind of you. Um, so that was really my highlight of the last week. Uh, before
2: you go on, um, yeah. I just want to tell Nick, since he's in the chat room, I'm very disappointed mm. in him. I flew <laughs> to Wichita on Monday and I was expecting you and your dad to pick me up as you did, you know, that time before and take me back over to uh, Delano's uh, barbecue co- uh, company. And uh, I waited and I waited and you never showed up. And I'm, I'm very, very disappointed. So just wanted Uh-oh. to let you know. Uh-oh. Oh, dear. Apparently, you must have been over
3: in the UK or something. Yeah, yeah. He was looking after me, I expect. Yeah. Uh, That was something I didn't expect, actually, to uh, meet uh, uh, Nick's dad and his brother, who are both there, uh, helping out with the uh, team, uh, the whole crew there, um, who... uh, Oh, I see one of Nigel's wine glasses. Um, The whole crew there. It's not one of uh, his. It's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everyone. I was just being distracted there by Nigel. Uh, Sorry, uh, Jeff. Whatever. I find
2: that uh, 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 a um, compliment. There we go.
3: There you go. So it was great to see. I didn't realize the whole family uh, were involved. They're all aviation nuts over there. Absolutely lovely bunch. And I love the idea of the fact that uh, when we put out a show, uh, it's going to be played in the hangar where Nick works uh, so that all the uh, mechanics will be uh, listening to the airline pilot guy. Oh, cool. And Yeah, and that's how his father got to listen. Mm -hmm. uh, His his dad um, doesn't actually get as far as downloading it himself but he now listens uh with nick and enjoys the show as well so uh, lovely to meet you both it was absolutely brilliant so uh, next week for me is uh, uh it's pretty good i have got um you know just a lot of things that retired uh pilots do um plus i'm uh, off uh, on quite a long drive up to RAF Marham where actually the uh uh, F-35 Lightning II's uh, base or is going to be based very shortly. Uh, I'm lecturing uh, the Royal Aeronautical Society uh, up there on uh, Wednesday. Sadly, I don't think uh, outside people will get the security clearances needed to get onto the base to um, attend. So that's going to be uh, sort of members only. So sorry about that. And on Friday, I'm going to interview Jeff Lee. Now, Jeff was, for many years, the chief uh, aviation photographer for British Aerospace. And uh, he is a friend of mine and has agreed to uh, let me chat to him for another plane tale. Uh, so really looking forward to seeing Jeff again, not only to catch up with an old friend, but also to listen to some of his stories uh, yeah, <laughs> from uh, the world of aviation. It looks like you're about to get eaten by a jet engine there, Jeff. Yes. It's right behind me. It's close. <laughs> Luckily, it's so, off. I'm, I'm looking forward to all that. that that's <clears> me i <throat> and invested now.
2: All right. Well, that's excellent. Now, uh, at what point did you want me to play the uh, the little special thank you message?
3: Oh, anytime you want. That's great. Now, yeah, because I know there are a lot of people that help contribute towards my retirement party, and uh, I did record a, a special little uh, thank you. So perhaps it would be appropriate to do that now, if that's Let's right. Yes. Hi everybody, it's Captain Nick here. Now that all the fuss is over, I'm looking back to my last days at work and the wonderful surprise lunch that was thrown for me and I wanted to tell everyone how profoundly grateful I was for what they did for me so please indulge me for a moment. Not only did I have a lovely day, I received the most wonderful gift of a model of my three favourite aircraft fins. I want to say an enormous thank you to Nigel Demery, who also did a lot of the organisation, to Adam Spink who commissioned that fabulous gift, and especially to the generosity of Captain Jeff and the APG crew, Dr. Steph, Captain Dana and Liz, and my friends David Abbey, Tanya, Tiffany, Myla, Rick Bell, Graham Haley, Phil Davis, Jen, Micah, Dispatcher Mike, who does the Flying and Life podcast, Pilot Pip and Captain Al from the Plane Safety podcast, Carlos, Matt and Nev from Plane Talking UK, and, of course, my lovely wife, Jilly. I know that many of you wanted to join me on a final flight, which would have been the most memorable event for me, and I hope a smooth one for you, but it wasn't to be. Let me assure you, though, that the gift plus the lovely cards and good wishes that I've received have more than made up for that last time in the air. You're all wonderful people, and my heartfelt thanks goes out to every one of you.
2: How nice of you, Captain Nick.
3: Well, I had to say, there's too many people for me to get around to, perhaps, write to everyone individually, but and for me, this, since we're podcasters and that's how we out, mate, seemed a much more appropriate way of saying thank you. So that really is a, a truly heartfelt thank you from me to you all, you wonderful poke. Excellent.
2: From myself and all of us, you're welcome. You're definitely Cheers. worth it. Cheers. Okay. Uh, let's see anything else, Captain Nick, or shall no,
3: I'm ready to go. To the Well, news.
2: I have a little, you know, we were talking about on, I don't remember if it was the last show or the one before that, but we were talking about the uh, feedback about somebody being moved from one side of the aircraft to the other because of the oxygen masks. And so two things, um, uh, well, I'll read this first one. Aaron Black wrote, 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 wrote to us via the, um, APG app, and by the way, a little side note, sidebar. Uh, the APG app, the push notifications. I know they're not working. Uh, we are trying to resolve that issue, and uh, our app guy. Uh, um, we we were having difficulty getting in touch with him, and uh, hoping that he can fix that for us. And so that's one of those things on the stove that I have to uh, move the pot up to the front and, and start working on. But I just haven't had a chance to do that. But uh, hopefully. We will uh, um, have that fixed soon and just wanted to mention that Uh, Aaron Black using the app, which obviously this feedback function of the app is still working. Uh, He says, hey, ABG crew, new listener from Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, Canada, current flight attendant with a medium sized carrier up here, 13 years in and student pilot working towards PPL and CPL wanted to say thank you to all of you for the great work on this podcast. Uh, I listened to it on my drive to and from the airport as well as on my commute across the country to and from work. I've learned so much from all of you in the 15 or so episodes I've listened to. I wanted to touch on the two feedbacks regarding oxygen masks. As a cabin crew member, we are trained in these systems. At our airline, we operate 737-400s ATR-42-300-500 aircraft. The three sevens are either all passenger or combi, so I guess part passenger and part um, uh, freight. They are all in a three and three setup seat wise. That being said, one are, one aircraft has four masks on the starboard side, but only three on the port only 3 souls can occupy the port side to avoid confusion and safety issues our company has trained all reservation agents ticket agents and cabin crew that this rest- restriction applies to all 737s in our fleet perhaps southwest airlines has something similar the photo i attached is on the forest fire smoke that caused my flights yesterday and today to be canceled ooh sorry to hear that fingers crossed that it clears by sunday so i can do my solo checkout ride yeah i hope so uh thank you all so much for the awesome show you're welcome. Wishing you clear skies, tailwinds. Keep the dirty side down, and may your number of takeoffs always equal your number of landings. Yeah, Steph, you hear that? Cheers, Aaron. Okay, so great. Uh, and then I also looked up in. Uh, I finally found it in our volume two, Dana. That um, the uh, the way the oxygen masks are set up in our jet, uh, the. Uh, no matter what side you're on whether the two seat side or the three seat side there's so on the two seat side there's always three masks on the three side three seat side there' always four so there's always one more mask uh, per number of seats if that makes sense at least that's what my manual says so i wasn't sure about that but uh, i did look that up after we discussed it on our show so okay I can't tell if Dana's trying to say something or not, because I don't hear anything. Still don't hear anything. It's acting up again, I guess. Nada.
4: No, that's that's my fault, because okay. I actually put on the electronic mute. Oh, okay. There so you go. So, I, I, speaking of looking things up, I looked it up. Mm-hmm. And I have a trusty uh, manual from Acting The uh, mask is what
2: we're talking about? What did you uh, look up?
4: Uh, looking at our at the first airline uh, airplane at Acme. Okay. Oh. And what it all entailed and mm-hmm. the first airplane that ever was used, the petrol P E T R E L thirty one. That's uh, and it had a four hundred horsepower Liberty twelve engine in it. Uh, and it indeed. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yes, of course you did when I flew it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And when you went out to hand propping it, I remember that you had to do that. So anyways, uh, yeah, seasonal dusting began in Macon first and then moved on to Ah, Louisiana. So you were
6: right. Ding, ding, ding.
4: Ding, 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 ding. And the first air service (laughs) airplane was a traveler S6000 Bravo with a right J6 Whirlwind 300 horsepower. Uh,
2: I didn't fly that one because I would have been very junior. So, so yes, I stayed on the petrol. <laughs> Say with a petrol. Yeah.
4: So <laughs> I had to look that up. I had I had the ability awesome. to look it I up. I have that
2: same book, Dana, Dana, somewhere. You do? Yeah. It's probably behind that oh, v- and, screen. And
4: not it. only that, David has a picture on his phone. Oh, yeah. Of the Huff the Land Duster. See if we can get that on the video. There it is. If you can see it now, there it is. Wow. Awesome. Where did you take that photo, David?
5: So there happens to be a museum right on the north side of the Atlanta Airport that covers the the history of Acme Airlines. Oh. And that that airplane is hanging in that museum, and I, I happened to hear that that museum does an excellent hops in the hangar activity.
2: Oh yeah, I know that about that museum. Apparently, I don't know anything else.
4: <laughs> you never, you never sober enough to remember anything I know. else.
6: <laughs>
2: They had airplanes in there? No. I don't remember that. (laughs) Okay. Excellent. Thank you, David. And thank you, Dana, for looking that up. That's our crack research team (laughs) with the emphasis on crack. All right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay. Let's see. Um, And he's
4: not even drinking.
2: I know. Wow. Got to love that. All right.
4: I'm feeling a little lonely.
2: Ah, okay. Well. What kind of bourbon are you drinking there, Dana?
4: I am so excited. I'm so excited.
2: YouTube is going to bust me now for doing that.
4: Blantons. And so went out to dinner on Wednesday night when I was on call. And my buddy that is a manager at the local restaurant that I happen to very much like had remembered that I was collecting the bottle caps. Because on the bottle cap of the Blantons is a horse with a uh, specific... A letter for each horse in its in its uh, in its pose that ultimately spells out Blanton's. If you collect all of those caps, which are very hard to come by, then you actually get a plaque with a, uh, a holder for every single one of those caps. I am now down to just needing the T and the O. After I went there on uh, on Wednesday night, so he gave me four caps. I have two in the house. All I need is the T and the O, and I have Blanton's. So that's what I'm drinking. That's a long, that's a very long answer to your question.
2: Well, it was a good one, though. It was worth every 10 minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, all right. So let's keep moving on, and let's talk about the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, oh,
5: thanks.
2: I love coffee, I love tea I love the APG Community Community. Coffee and tea And the Java and me A cup, cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup Well, the Coffee Fund is your way to support the show financially. And a couple different ways to do it. The first is called the Coffee Fund Classic Method where you can set up a recurring payment as Jason Kuntz Alistair Kerr, Randolph Ackerman, and Jeff Moeller have done, as well as others. And then it's also your way to send us periodic, individual, one-time-only, whatever, uh, contributions. And since the last show, we got a very generous contribution from Magnus Gladen. That's a real bell that I'm ringing there. And uh, he sent us 100... Dollars. That's why I had to ring the bell. Yeah, brilliant. So, uh, and he, he sent in an email and said he was he was feeling bad. And he's already given us some really nice, generous contributions in the past. But he said no need to feel bad. But I am kind of feeling bad. So if you want to send more, you know, no, I'm just kidding. I did not say that. So uh, there you go. That's the uh, coffee Fun classic method. We also have a different way to do it. You can become a patron of the show via Patreon. Patreon.com/airlinepilotguy. And oh, the music is running out. Ah, well. Since the last episode, we have a couple, uh, three actually, new um, producers, and they are Eric Chadwick and Bill Crayon and Michelle Deprez or Michael Deprez. I'm not sure. He's from Australia, and uh, based on his email address anyway. And we also have a new. Let's see. That would be the executive producer level. Uh, We have Logan Lynch. Actually, he went from a dollar to five per episode. So thank you, Logan, for uh, upping your contributions. And folks out there, up yours. All right. Um, I guess we can now move on. Oh wait, hang on. Just today, actually, uh, before we started recording the show, we I received. Uh, notification that we have yet another new executive producer and his name is Dave Lakeland. So there you have it. couple new executive producers. We have uh, three new producers. And if you want to join the coffee fund or what do you call it, uh, Nick? The coffee bund fund, coffee bar fund. I don't know. The thing where you give us financial support.
3: I, 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 I call it what comes to mind. <laughs> okay.
2: And if you want to join that great gang of people and uh, get the perk of uh, receiving periodic crew logs, which we just published one today, Nick did one for us, and uh, you should check out AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did, and so will we. Brilliant. Stand by for news. Thank you, Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey. Good day. Now you know the rest of the story. Now you know the rest of the story. I used to love listening yeah. to him. Great. He is just such a great radio, or was yeah. a, such a great radio broadcaster. He was, exactly. Yeah.
4: And, I, and I always, when I tell, try to explain what Plain Tales uh-huh. is like to people, I explain, if you ever heard the rest of the story, Paul Harvey.
2: Yeah. I, Nick, I kinda, have you ever heard uh, Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story? No. Oh that's, man, we got to figure figure out a way for you to listen to those. You yeah, would, because it's
4: almost like Nick's,
2: yeah, Nick's plain tales. Yeah, it was always like a little twist though at the end. Uh, am I in competition
3: with this man? You're better. Oh uh, well, <laughs>
2: yeah. You uh, and he and he's gone anyway. So uh, bless, uh, oh, rest right. in peace. Yes.
3: That's Yep. Definitely.
2: Okay. All right, let's start with the first item in the news folder. Uh, not a good story. Um. This is from WSB Radio, a great radio station here in Atlanta. Uh, a man mauled by another passenger's emotional support, or would it be mauled? How would you say that in, uh, in Britain? Mold. Mold. A man mauled by another passenger's emotional support dog. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I know, that I didn't do it quite right. <laughs> On a Delta Airlines flight, has sued the airline and the other passenger for negligence. The lawsuit filed in Fulton County State Court, I live in Fulton County, uh, alleges Marlon Jackson was in a window seat when a dog sitting in the lap of the passenger next to him suddenly attacked his face and pinned him against the window of the plane. The June 2017 attack during boarding of a flight from Atlanta to San Diego gained national attention. I don't even remember this, actually, and was followed by a series of changes to airline policies for emotional support and service animals. The federal government is also reviewing its policies for emotional support and service animals on flights. Quote, while Mr. Jackson was securing his seatbelt, the animal began to growl at him, according to the lawsuit. The dog then bit Jackson several times. That, That would make me feel uncomfortable if the dog was growling. The attack was briefly interrupted when the animal was pulled away from Mr. Jackson. However, the animal broke free again and mauled Mr. Jackson's face. Jackson, who lives in Alabama, quote, bled so profusely that the entire row of seats had to be removed from the airplane, according to the complaint. He suffered lacerations and punctures to his face and upper body requiring 28 stitches and medical treatment. The lawsuit also alleges Jackson suffered permanent injury and loss of sensation in areas of his face, severe physical pain and suffering, emotional distress, mental anguish, loss of income And er, or earning potential, and substantial medical bills. His entire lifestyle has been severely impaired by this attack, the litigation states. Anyway, um, Delta, the suit alleges, took no action to verify or document the behavioral training of a large animal, or of the large animal. Such as requiring signed document, documentation showing the animals trained and can behave in the airplane setting. Such measures were feasible at the time, but were not in effect until after his attack. Anyway, so it goes on. We'll have the rest of that article in the show notes. But uh, wow, that uh, that's not a not a good thing. Um, you know, to be don't. attacked this like is, that.
3: This is quite dreadful. But we forget that. If the passenger requires emotional support because it becomes agitated and worried about the thought of flying, not every animal is going to be passive and put in exactly the situation, same situation of the unfamiliar surroundings, the very crowded uh, um, environment inside a cabin. It's hardly surprising that some dogs are not suited to be in that environment and they themselves can feel threatened uh, and this is uh, a quite a likely reaction. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the dog may not have been uh, suitable as an emotional support animal, and certainly putting it in that uh, environment was extremely unfair on the animal and ultimately uh, very dangerous for the poor passenger that was attacked. So mm-hmm. I have very little sympathy for the dog owner and not a lot of sympathy for the airline because just allowing... Anyone with any kind of a document that or just even saying, oh, I need this animal for emotional support doesn't really prove that it's fit and safe to have it on an aircraft.
2: Yeah. And that's why Delta was one of the first that to come up with very strict guidelines regarding emotional support animals. Uh, They're still allowed, but they uh, have to be, you know, certain rules have to be followed. And yes, there are still people out there cheating. Uh, because I, you know, Dana and I see them all the time, uh, especially the ones that are supposed to be, like, uh, the regular, uh, what do you call it, service animals, and you know they're dragging their 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 owner uh, through the airport. I'm thinking, eh, I don't think a service animal would act that way. Uh, so you know, I know that there's a lot of cheating going on there, but you know, they were kind of between a rock and a hard place because if they if they say absolutely no emotional support animals, then they're going to get lawsuits from people because they're saying, well, I, I should have the right to have an emotional support animal. So, you know, I I don't know exactly, you know, what to do in this situation.
4: It, the, the whole situation is run amok, in my opinion, because mm-hmm. it, it sounds like from the original. I, I remember when this happened and from the original um, situation. Now it's now it's litigious lit, lit mm-hmm. Litigious. He got it. Did I say it right? Yes. Uh the the way this is written, of course, and that's because now the lawyers are involved. Um I just think a lot of people just wanted to have a free ride with their animals. Didn't want to have them put in the cargo compartment, have to pay for it, and or have uh um have to pay for a cabin animal, which, you know, for years, you know, I, I, I traveled with my dog all the time. She was in the kennel uh, underneath the seat in front of me. I, even as an on river I had to pay. So,
2: uh, motion support. Yeah, like a hundred bucks or something. I think. Uh, I think it, we, it, you know, we it, picked up some cats in San Antonio, and and it was, uh, you know, I don't know exactly how much it was. It, it, but it, it was, varied. It
4: went from uh, like fifty to seventy-five okay. to, to hundred and and you know, it 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 was. I can't remember all the times yeah. that we took her home, but, um, the the moral of the story is is that how can a airline be culpable for a uh, a documented animal? I mean, if somebody says, I have an emotional support animal, and they have a, a, a no from a doctor, how do you argue? I mean, in a court of law, how do you argue I that? I know. You, you can't. Well, the so, doctor
3: hasn't assessed the animal's suitability. That's how you argue it. I mean, the doctor says not under your, US his law, my patient... Friend his patient may require an emotional support animal. It's up to the patient to acquire one that is fit to fly on an airplane and be in the close quarters of a crowded cabin. So I don't think that's the doctor's point. I think the the emphasis is on the patient who gets the animal to get a suitable one. Well,
4: being that said, there are service animals that are certified to be service animals, and I agree with you. But here in the United States of America, with our legal system, it kind of damned if you're doing it damned if you don't yeah. right so uh you know it, it, as Jeff alluded to is if you go ahead and you say to that passenger say hey no uh you know we don't have proper documentation it doesn't it doesn't uh, it, it doesn't meet w- with our with our our standards who who are we as airline people to judge whether an, an animal is properly trained yeah We can't just say no because, under and and we talked about this, I don't know how many episodes ago, and I think I was corrected on it. But the ADA, Mm -hmm. right, gets involved, and and there's all types of uh, uh, legal situations you can get into. And if somebody declares they have a a service animal that is in motion support, how do you, I mean, how do you not allow them on the airplane?
3: Because you can get two. In the UK, we only allow a uh, uh, very few organisations to, uh, and they're extremely well trusted, uh, to certify that the animal is what it says it is. And those organisations require the animals to be properly trained, like seeing eye dogs, which go through rigorous training to make right. sure they're absolutely suitable. And those kind of support animals, not just any therapist or any yeah. organization that has been dreamt up on the internet or wherever it comes from.
4: But legally here in the United States, we would if you have a doctor that signs a document and says this person needs an emotional support animal, doesn't matter what the training is, right? They they we are as an airline, acme, are required to go ahead and honor that doctor's note and allow that person to have that emotional support. I mean we it's agree morning, with you.
2: Man. We we wish that there were some more strict regulations regarding this. Right. Uh but but we can't <laughs> here in our country. And and it that
3: the airline now right. has introduced much stricter regulations though. So presumably it could have done that right at the beginning, could it not?
2: I suppose so. I don't, I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not in touch with the legal department of this airline, so I don't know exactly what, you know, I do I'm know getting, that.
3: That's, that's the point I'm getting at. Yeah. Really but many at
2: least... for many, many years, though, Nick, um, uh, our company, uh, which is very similar to Delta Airlines, uh, would rather their legal department, when they have lawsuits filed, they found it just more expeditious and, and uh, cheaper just to pay uh, settlements to all these people. Uh, instead of taking it into the uh, legal system, and and uh, so, uh, which is which is disgusting because some of the lawsuits against the airline were so ridiculous that you know you'd say well just for the principle of this I'm, I would fight it but they found that uh, economically speaking it just doesn't make a lot of sense.
3: Yeah, so it's a
2: shame, isn't it? It is.
4: Oh well, hey, hey, Stephanie I- just Dr. Steph just uh, chimed in. Online psychiatrists sign off on the need for an emotional support animal.
3: Yeah, well, that's exactly my that's, point. Yeah, wrong. Yeah. yeah, wrong. But having said that, the, the, so the patient needs it, but it still you need someone else to say this animal is suitable. I don't think unless the patient. We all a, agree. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I say an animal has to Keep has all the animals off the airplane.
4: <laughs> I mean, I could have, I could have very easily had had my friend who is a psychiatrist go ahead and not that no, you know, it's just a personal friend from from social groups. Uh, write me a letter saying that my Misty, my dog, needed. she's my emotional support animal and put a vest on her and she wouldn't hurt a flea or fly, right? And say that, you know, she can come on the airplane with me. That way I could avoid paying the 50 or 75 or $100. And, you know, well, little 11-pound dog, what's she going to do? I mean, she wasn't a vicious little thing. But I mean, that's just the point I'm making is that anybody can get that.
3: Yeah, I think we've co- probably covered this enough now.
2: Yeah, I think we've. Uh, I, I think I hear the the horse kind of breathing its last. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so, and and there's a quite a spirited discussion in the chat room, and uh, yeah, it's it's one of those those uh, things that uh, you know makes everybody you know excited. So probably best for us just to to leave it uh, as is and move on. Uh, we have some updates from some previous uh, accidents that we've talked about on the show, and I've combined them all in this second news item. Uh, We'll start with uh, the Embraer ERJ-190LR that uh, was having some work performed, some maintenance work performed on it in Lisbon, Portugal. And on May 31st, uh, GPIAAF, whatever that stands for, uh, Portugal, published in... Their investigation update uh, reported uh, that a detailed examination of the aircraft flight control showed an incorrect ailerons control cable system installation. Uh, Basically, bottom line, uh, they, the, um, well, here, I'll read a little bit more. Um, A modification carried out in accordance with Embraer Service Bulletin, blah, 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 changed a cable routing support near RIB-21 of the aircraft, this change made it harder to understand the maintenance instructions and spot reversed and spot reversed aileron cables. During maintenance, the engine indicating and crew alerting system uh, (EICAS) or ICAS, displayed a caution message: "Flight control no dispatch," meant that one of the components of the flight control system had failed. Troubleshooting activities by the maintenance service providers, uh, supported by the aircraft manufacturer, lasted 11 days. However, the aileron's cables reversal was not identified in this period. Also prior to the departure, the aileron's incorrect operation caused by the control cables reversal was not identified in the aircraft operational checks, the flight controls checks by the operator crew. Ah, uh, that's not good.
3: So well, that, they were, that's terrifying. That's I mean, uh, yeah. If, if you're doing a, a check ride on an aircraft, that's had a flight control problem, <laughs> I know. you, you wouldn't correctly do a control check that would be a, well, that would
2: have been the safeguard right there right that would be the yep. the the thing oh, that would your, have,
3: yeah, yeah your last chance to catch it
2: mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah so they were they were doomed uh, although they somehow figured it out and got it under control uh, and uh, got the airplane on the ground uh, just miraculously really I mean that that should have been another complete loss of yep. aircraft in life and they managed to uh, get it on the ground and uh uh, I can't you know just your brain probably wouldn't compute I'm like why well, I'm turning this way but the airplane's going the other you know big mess yeah. um, the other one uh, Fortunately, one of, they were pretty smart and figured it out though. they finally did uh, there's um, there's a lot more to it uh, I'll put the whole report in the um, show notes um, and it goes through uh, the g-forces excessive g-forces they experienced while they were trying to get gain control of the airplane. And they disconnected the flight control uh, computers and were just uh, basically flying in direct law or direct mode um, and uh, were able to finally stabilize the aircraft enough so they could kind of control it enough to get it on the ground. In fact, the last landing attempt, um, I think it was their third landing attempt, uh, they were able to get the aircraft landing on the runway, and they were shooting for one of the runways, but they actually landed on the parallel runway. <laughs> so, But good thing there was a parallel runway. Uh Thanks. Yeah. All right. Uh, next is the accident, uh the Aeroflot uh SU ninety five at Moscow uh, on May fifth, twenty nineteen. You know, the one that landed and really pranked it on and collapsed the main landing gear and uh several people died because of that accident. Uh also the one where several people grabbed their their luggage and before they left the airplane. Uh
4: that's that's not a newsfall though.
2: Yeah, um, it's uh, part part of the second item, item B, uh, that I'm looking at here. Let me see. Um, on May 18th, 2019, means, Rosa Vi- Viazia reported mm-hmm. that the captain, uh, 43 years old, he was a uh, uh, had 6,844 hours total, so 1,570 hours on type. Was assisted by first officer, 36 years old, uh, 773 hours total, 623 hours on type. Uh, they were about 30 to 40 kilometers, 16 to 21 nautical miles west of the Sheremetyevo airport. There was rain in clouds. Uh, the clouds extended. Vlad, if you're listening, Vlad, the controller, our friend that lives in and works in Moscow, um, I, I, he did record some of these names for me. I just hadn't had a chance to. Uh, to fix the files yet. So uh, maybe I'll do that in post. Um, Anyway, the, uh, there was rain in clouds. The clouds extended to a height of 8,000 to 9,000 meters and contained a thunderstorm. Uh, The aircraft was climbing through 7,900 feet at 1508 Z when an electrical failure occurred. The flight control system degraded to direct mode. The autopilot automatically disconnected. The aircraft was in the middle of thunderstorm activity The captain assumed manual control of the aircraft until the end of the flight. Radio communication that had taken place on VHF-1 radio so far became unavailable. The crew was able to partially restore communication via VHF-2, the second radio, on the uh, emergency frequency only. The crew set the squawk for a loss of communication. The crew decided to return to the airport and perform a manual ILS approach to runway 24 left. At the time, the aircraft intercepted the glide slope. The aircraft's mass was 42,600 kilograms, which was 1,600 kilograms above the maximum landing weight. The crew deployed the flaps to 25 degrees in accordance with the flight crew operating manual for flight with minimum mode, which is direct mode, of the flight control system, as well as landing above maximum landing weight. The uh, speed, approach speed was determined to be 155 knots indicated. The descent on the glide slope was stabilized and without any deviation from the uh, derived uh, velocity approach, the uh, approach speed. Winds during the approach came from 190 degrees at 30 knots. Descending between 1,100 and 900 feet, the crew received five cycles of predictive wind shear warnings. Wind shear ahead, go around. Descending through 260 feet AGL, the aircraft began to deviate below the glide slope. A glide slope warning occurred. Uh, Descending between 180 to 40 feet The engine thrust was increased, causing the aircraft to accelerate to 164 knots. At 16 feet above ground level, the speed was 170 knots. A train awareness warning system oral signal retard occurred. The engine thrust was reduced to idle. At that point, the captain began to apply oscillating pitch inputs with increasing amplitude, which changed the pitch angle up to plus 6 and minus 2 degrees. The aircraft made a three-point touchdown 900 meters past the runway threshold at 158 knots and a vertical load of 2.55 G's, bounced up to six feet. The spoilers did not deploy in direct mode. They are not permitted to operate automatically, and they need to be extended manually. However, the spoilers were not manually extended by the crew. Two seconds after the first touchdown, the aircraft touched down a second time with the nose gear first at 155 knots and... Plus 5.85 G's. That's a lot of G-force there. That's a hard, hard, hard landing. The aircraft bounced off again to 18 feet. A third touchdown occurred at 140 knots in excess of 5 G's, resulting in the destruction of the construction of the airplane, Mm -hmm. a fuel spill, and fire. While the aircraft was skidding along the runway at 100 knots, a first fire alarm triggered in the aft cargo compartment. Sixteen seconds later in the tail section of the aircraft, the aircraft came to a stop. in uh, sixteen seconds they got another fire warning in the tail section of the aircraft. The aircraft came to a stop twenty seconds after the first fire alarm. Forty seconds after the first fire alarm, the fire extinguisher in the tail section was activated. The engines continued to run until the end of the flight data uh, recorder recording. Uh, the maK is conducting the investigation which focuses also on the predictive wind shear alerts and the reaction to them yeah so when we hear wind shear ahead wind shear ahead go around we we go around <laughs> obviously uh, what it was looking at the uh, predictive wind shear system uses radar and uh, to scan ahead of the aircraft and when you receive that kind of wind, predictive wind shear warning that means there's something dark red right in front of you uh, in the, in the path of the aircraft. And um, they apparently ignored it and continued to uh, do their landing. So it looks like they um, uh, the MAK uh, reported the preliminary, pre- preliminary report of more than 100 pages has been drafted and is currently being proofread. It's estimated to be released in the coming days. So, there you have the update so far on the uh, the Moscow crash of the Su ninety five or Super one hundred or whatever they're calling it. Uh, those g forces are just um, wow, <laughs> crazy. Um, anything to say before I hit the next?
4: I mean this this is this is what scares me. I mean, look at that. He he got hired with one hundred and fifty hours. Yeah, seven hundred seventy three hours total. 623 hours on type that's for the uh, co-pilot yeah the co-pilot mm-hmm. and you know we don't know i mean it doesn't say here who was flying does it they miss it
2: i think the no i don't know if it does say who was flying yeah, i don't think it it's the who captain was flying. yeah
4: i mean i would be assuming that's captain but you never know i mean 773 total hours 623 hours on type yeah. it doesn't tell me that they have a whole lot of experience and this is this is what actually kind of scares me for what's coming down
2: i know pipe, i know. You know we're gonna this is gonna be a common theme dana unfortunately uh, yeah, unfortunately so uh that's and, you, I and you can uh, yeah and uh sort of uh, in this last thing that i have in this update uh folder or update note is the miami air uh, boeing 737 800 at jacksonville naval air station on the 3rd of may uh, they uh, ran uh, it was a runway overrun on landing and they ended up in the river. In late May, the NTSB released an investigative update stating that the approach approach control had advised the crew that both runways looked pretty bad and were socked in. Which means, for us, that means not good, uh, really bad weather. Winds favored runway 28. However, as the aircraft came closer, Tower queried whether the crew wanted runway 10 as it was looking better. I don't know if that means wind-wise or because of the... Severe thunderstorm cells or what? It doesn't say here. The crew accepted runway 10. Tower reported the winds from 240 degrees at 10 knots when he cleared the flight to land. The aircraft touched down about 1,600 feet past the displaced threshold of the runway uh, 10. And that's not bad, actually. Um, 10, oh, runway 10, about 20 feet to the right of the runway centerline, returned onto the centerline about 10 or 1,000 feet further down the runway then veered right again and was 75 feet right of the runway, already off the runway, about 6,200 feet past the threshold, and struck a rock embankment. The captain, who had 7,500 hours total, 3,000 on type, that's a considerably good experience, uh, therefore 1,000 hours in command, was assisted by a first officer, 7,500 hours total, 18 hours on type, the NTSB wrote the accident flight was part of an operating experience trip. You know, here, uh, the term used, in fact, Dana used it earlier, OE or IOE, uh, operational um, experience is what uh, that stands for, right? OE, initial operat- experience. operating experience, something right. like
4: that. Or a- initial, I, I, yeah. IOE. Initial operating initial experience. And OE is operating experience.
2: Yeah. Um, the uh, So... Um, Let's see. The accident flight was part of an operating experience trip for the first officer that began the day before the accident. On the day of the accident, the crew operated a flight from uh, KNIP to MUGM, which I think is um, Jacksonville Naval Air Station down to um, uh, Gitmo, uh, Guantanamo Bay in uh, Cuba, then operated the return flight to Jacksonville Naval Air Station where they and that was the accident flight. So that's the update on that so far. So, comments.
3: Well, those guys have plenty of experience.
2: Yeah. 7,500 hours is a lot of experience for both of them. Now, of course, the, the captain had a lot more experience on this particular airplane, and obviously the uh, first officer did not. Uh, he was on his OE. So, uh, but... Again, I don't know. Uh, I don't recall if they said on the earliest report or in this one, they didn't. Who was actually at the controls who was flying the airplane at the time. But yeah, yeah, so I'm not sure here that, uh, you know, um, lack of experience is is a factor. But I think that there are a lot of things happening uh, now that uh, kind of point to that, to me anyway. And I I share uh, Dana's concern uh, that this is going to be something that's going to be a, a problem in a now and into the future. Not sure how to fix it, but that, there it is. Okay. Uh, moving on to item C, uh, Colonel Jeff and Janelle Egan. I think Janelle, she's still in the chat room with us. We haven't seen her in a while. Um, anyway, uh, she uh, wrote in, or actually they both wrote in, actually they just kind of, asked us to talk about these articles. Um, the first one from Seattle Times. The Federal Aviation Administration on Sunday issued a statement alerting airlines and international aviation regulators that certain wing parts on more than 300 Boeing 737s may have been improperly manufactured and must be replaced within 10 days. Both older Model 737 NGs and new 737 maxes are affected, and there appears to be... No connection with the recent fatal MAX crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia. The FAA said the parts in question are the slat track assemblies used to guide the movable control surfaces, surfaces on the leading edge of an airplane's wing that deploy during takeoff and landing, actually before takeoff and during takeoff and before landing. Manufactured by a Boeing sub tier supplier, a batch of about or up to 148 parts with specific lot numbers are affected. Because the parts have been improperly manufactured, they may not meet regulatory requirements for strength and durability. Uh, The affected parts may be susceptible to premature failure or cracks, the FAA said. Although a complete failure of a leading-edge slat track would not result in the loss of an aircraft, a risk remains that a failed part could lead to aircraft damage in flight. And uh, let's see, that goes on. Let's move down to the next one. From Business Insider, Boeing's nightmare year gets even worse as it admits hundreds of planes, including 159 737 Maxes, may have defective parts on their wings. And uh, so it basically kind of reiterates what we just read in the previous article. Um, so, yeah, more woes for uh, the, uh, the manufacturer of uh, many, many airplanes out there, that uh, Boeing, that um, they didn't need. And looks like one of their one of their third party uh, parts suppliers uh, sent them um, bad badly manufactured parts that they install on these airplanes. So
3: I, I wonder if number one, uh, the FAA, feeling they might have been let down by Boeing concerning uh, the MCAS problem, are now zeroing in and uh, starting to look at everything that they might be concerned about and are starting to pick up a few other things, some of which may not be entirely justified, but now they feel like they have to. Yeah, Uh, That's question number one. And question number two I have, because I'm not that familiar with it, how much of their work is subcontracted? And I wonder what procedures they have to... Quality control. Yeah, Yeah. the subcontractors, because it doesn't seem to be the Boeing self-manufactured... Bits or their systems, it's it's people who they have contracted this work out to that are letting them down. Right,
2: including the people that uh, did the software for the MCAS. Yeah. Um, But, you know, Boeing obviously shares a lot of blame in that whole thing, and we're not going to talk about that right now because we've talked about that quite a bit already. But, you know, I I agree with you, uh, Nick. I'm sure that – I mean, we've seen this. Uh, You you have, Nick. uh, Dana has – you know a lot of you listening when an airline has some issues all of a sudden the FAA is like on you like giving you all kinds of attention that you don't want <laughs> and and uh, they may actually be a little bit more particular than they normally would and not saying that this is not you know warranted uh, this I'm sure is uh, you never want an airplane fly you know flying around with parts that are substandard not meeting specs so no exactly right um, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, this is, it's a continuation of the same. Mm. Yeah. I, I'm not well, it. hey, if that wasn't worse or bad enough, <laughs> finally, item D, the FAA finds Boeing 787's jet, 787 jets, wheels, and tires could lose braking and steering function. Now we're not talking about the 7.3 this time. We're talking about the 7.8.7, the Dreamliner. Um, Boeing has been hit by new safety concerns, Affecting two further plane models. Okay, we talked about one of the concerns, the 737 slat tracks. Uh, this involves the 787 Dreamliner, and it uh, they can be susceptible to damage, which could result in a loss of braking on one main landing gear truck, loss of nose wheel steering, and loss of directional control on the ground when below the rudder effectiveness speed. Which is basically the same thing. If you don't have nose wheel steering. Once you're below the rudder effectiveness speed, the only thing that's keeping you going straight or whichever way you're trying to make the airplane go, you've lost because you don't have nose wheel steering. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, well, I think I mentioned on the PTUK, we talked about the same thing. Uh, there, I believe I remember reading something about this months back and the fact that they were going to have to do something to fix this. And they, and they did on the production models that, um, occurred after the point that they knew that this was going that this was an issue um, so but I guess there's some still out there flying uh, that have this um, susceptibility to damage of uh, basically uh, hydraulic lines uh, that are uh, exposed on the uh, main landing gear trucks and when you lose the hydraulic system to the uh, the braking system of the airplane and the nose wheel steering system it's not a good thing. So uh, they put out a directive to compel operators to make the required repairs on effective aircraft, affected aircraft already use in, in use in their fleets. So again, hmm, yeah, a lot of attention, possibly probably warranted, uh, but more bad news for Boeing aircraft. So, hi, Steph. Oh, look at that. Thank you very much. I wasn't looking at the. uh... Hi. Hey, Steph. Oh, get the get the uh, microphone. You know, that never happens. I was
7: fixing it while I was listening to you guys.
2: Still, still your computer uh, mic. But you sound great anyway, you know, so whatever. Be right
7: right back. There's only one way to fix this.
2: Okay. When she comes back, we're going to hear something that sounds a lot like this. And you know what? I love that. That is a an original. Sounds like a, the what is the the series called? ER. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I remember
3: the, that. I used to enjoy that.
2: Yes. And do you know who did that for us, Captain Nick? Jeff. No. Better. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. Yep. You're on it. I, I was did, just talked.
7: I changed nothing.
2: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's that's audio for you. Yeah. Um, so uh, I was just talking about your, uh, your theme song. Uh, our good friend and APG community member and uh, one of the great co-hosts of the Plain Talking UK, Neville mm-hmm. Bounds, is the one who actually created this original music for us. So we can play it all darn day long and YouTube pfft, can't do anything about it because it's not a copyright violation. All right, here we go. Well, look... Lucky who is there just now joining us from her lakeside cottage in South Carolina. Shoot. <laughs> what you are you You don't have your notes no. in front of you, do you?
7: <laughs> well, I can Sorry. tell you.
2: It doesn't matter all the things that she I mean there's so many things that she does so well. It doesn't matter. But I you know, she's a skydiver and she's um IPA connoisseur and she's a strength training junkie. And she flies airplanes. She's a commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. But the best thing is that she's a great person and our friend, Dr. Steph.
7: And I finally made it.
2: Yes. The show. Yay. You all. Yeah. Yay. About no, just a little bit past the half hour. I mean, the half show. Halfway
7: point. point. Yeah. I know. That was not my intention at all. Oh, I no. I
2: apologize. So so what, like what's going on with recently. you? A little stress?
7: I, I'm not stressed. Yeah? No. There's okay. no reason just to be She's got a beer in her hand now.
2: She's
4: not stressed <laughs> yeah. at all.
7: I haven't been actually to be fair, I have not felt stressed all day. Oh, good. there's not much you can do about it, you know oh,
2: I love just your attitude
7: deal with it and move on
2: there you go, folks. so that's the kind of attitude to have right
7: and there. anymore i I'd like to say that I'm surprised at some of the things that seem to happen uh yep. just in the working environment
0: mm-hmm.
7: but i'm I'm not <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: all the humanity they
7: used to yeah those things used to disappoint me <laughs> just expect it anymore. <laughs> So, Well, anyway, without getting into any specifics, yeah, I'm sorry you had a bad day. It's been long after. Well, yeah, I mean, the day itself was actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. Like, the schedule was good. The pay, well, not the schedule. Take that back. The patients were good. The procedures were good. People were feeling better for the most part today. That when I saw people in follow up, and you know, sometimes just can't get our act together in other ways. When one part is going well, other things are not going well. This was all purely administrative. Which is, yeah, okay. I, won't, I won't get on that soapbox right now because okay. I could go on for a very long time and that would just be the- We just don't uh, have enough
2: time for that. Health.
7: It could be a separate podcast <laughs> in and of itself, probably on a daily basis Yeah, uh, for several hours. So, there oh, you well. It. Anyway, it ended with me being um, uh, up on the other side of Charlotte this afternoon, far, far away from where I actually normally work and far, far away from where I actually live.
3: How's the weather up there?
7: Terrible. Not good. (laughs) Not good. Uh, Actually, it's fine. Yep, you have
3: your roof on the Jeep? (laughs) Yes. Well, (laughs) so
7: funny story about that. They've been forecasting this rain um, all week. Well, starting on Wednesday, really. And I did not have the roof on the Jeep. I'd taken it off last week when it was nice and sunny and no chance of rain. And I woke up on Wednesday morning, kind of late for work, unfortunately, because it's been a busy week in general. And I was, you know, trying to squeeze in every little last drop of sleep that I could. For the evening, uh, for the morning, anyway, and I got up and I turned on the weather and went, "Oh shoot, I forgot! It's really supposed to rain today. They're calling for these afternoon thunderstorms." I really should put the top back on the jeep because it's going to pour and I'll just be caught out in it. And I was already running late. I was like, oh, "I don't have to do this myself." So it took me about fifteen minutes to, to manage to get it all back together, and I actually made it to work on time still. Too wow, that's fast! You know what it didn't do on Wednesday? It did not rain on Wednesday. <laughs> well, I was like, well, okay, that's not. fine, because they're calling for the same thing on Thursday. You know what it didn't do on Thursday? It didn't rain. Rain. did not rain on Thursday.
2: Please don't tell it me raining. you took the top off.
7: I did not take the top okay. off. I'm not, well, they, they're, bit, for they're forecasting it clear through like next Wednesday, so I'd be an idiot to <laughs> do that. But today it did show up as forecast, and um, it was raining quite hard um, up on the north side of Charlotte. Uh, it's not really raining here, but um, because I was in a little bit of a a hurry um i did not stop to grab my umbrella on the way into the building earlier today even though it was raining at that time too and then it was raining even harder um for me to cross the parking lot on my way back
2: so I got looks like your hair is a little kinda, bit wet
7: it is <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure what to do it's just terrible right now it's just like matted into no, my head it's like, fine. Hey. It's like, um
4: yeah
7: i'm surprised it's not just like super <laughs> frizzy and
4: you know all all, 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 you, all you hairy people don't understand Mm. how nice it is not to have hair because it's dry instantaneously.
7: I should just shave my head is what you're saying.
2: Yes. I don't, I wouldn't vote for that. No, I wouldn't do that. (laughs)
7: It would be easier. I not yeah. have to worry about it for running or for swimming or for.
2: Apply, I'd yep. have to apply more sunscreen, though. <laughs> is that your garage door, Dana, or is that uh, Captain Nick making that
7: horrible sound? <laughs>
4: I think that's Captain Nick. But
2: it sounds just like the garage door, actually.
3: That <laughs> sounds like it's BOB. That's the electric roof of my Audi. Um, oh, that's
7: nice your car has an electric roof that must be nice uh, so does yeah, not, yeah, i have a hand uh, crank in my garage to to use the lift for it it took 15 minutes i was to gonna
3: ask you that they sell out is in america
7: <laughs> you know i hear they do, they uh, do.
3: yes okay
2: um so anyway
7: um the first officers i fly a, with
2: that are that okay. shave their heads mm-hmm. are bald uh they, like, get up 15 minutes before signing. Yeah,
7: in. I know. That's what <laughs> I'm saying. Like, I, why am I spending all <laughs> the time getting polish. my hair together <laughs> in the morning for just to rain all over it and, you know, be sloppy and a mess? Anyway, a uh, quick public public service announcement. Um, if you drive a vehicle and it's raining outside, even if it's daylight, please, please, please just turn your lights on as well.
3: Yes, it's a state law, I think, in most
2: states. It
7: is states. state law in most states. It is yeah. in North Carolina All and I South listen, Carolina.
3: I that All our listeners are beautiful and yeah. um, yeah, brilliant.
7: I hope so, because I would say about half the people on the road today in pouring rain with poor visibility,
3: well, even though it's daylight hours. Listen. Yeah. 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 <laughs> if that's they you, just
7: listen. you can just take your listenership and, and like, or stay with us and maybe just turn your lights on. <laughs> turn
2: your lights on. Yeah. Please. Just turn your darn lights on. Please. I know. I
7: did witness a very um, almost kind of comical uh, accident in a parking lot, too, on the way home today. So that was kind of <laughs> funny. Um, <laughs> I, I just don't even know what to say about <laughs> some of this
2: stuff. It's like well, I think, you know, the people that don't turn the lights on, they're thinking, well, I don't need to turn the lights on because I can see just fine. Well, well I'm wondering if it's, it's um, not because yeah, you no, can't not be- see. Be- I
7: can't see you. I can't see you. You need to be please. seen
2: by everybody else. Uh,
7: You know, you look at your rearview mirror and you're like, well, there's no one behind me. Then you're like, wait a minute. There's like five cars behind me. None of them have their lights
2: on. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Very frustrating. Well, we're we're so happy that you're with us.
7: Also, if you're making a um, right-hand turn into a parking lot, probably stay, uh, at least in the United States where we drive on the right side of the road, you want to stay to the right. Because if there's a car waiting to exit the parking lot on what is their right side of the road, then you continue but go on the left side. Which is where that car already is. You're probably going to run into them. Just saying.
2: That was a little just, uh, U.S. slash U.K. confusion going on there.
7: I—that's I, the only thing I could come up with. I'm like, <laughs> this guy has been somewhere overseas driving on the left from side. From London. The, just <laughs> really not sure which side of the parking lot he. I mean, the car that was waiting to leave was already occupying that spot. So mm-hmm. you think? Um, anyway, that was—it it was actually kind of funny. Well,
2: there anyway, you go. Mm.
7: I feel a little sorry for the guys sitting there. <laughs> um what else gosh
2: i don't know it's been a week any uh meetups or flying or uh, i think uh, you sky not flying i was some doing skydiving, some skydiving right? last yeah. weekend
7: that was that was fun been a while since i'd been up um mm-hmm. but did a couple of nice jumps it was the big uh yearly uh boogie so skydiving get-togethers um uh, when they organize and have a lot of people come in from all over the country they call them a boogie and uh this was the yearly one where i jump. And it was great fun because they have folks come in who help organize jumpers um, so you can jump with them and they will, you know, make the jump as fun as possible and organize you based on skill level and what everyone wants to do. And, and it usually turns out pretty well. So that was fun. Very cool. Yeah. And probably not going to do much of anything this weekend in terms of flying and or jumping because the rain is Weather supposed is to continue. The weather's going to be poor seems like a theme this year. And last end of last year, like a broken record. Nice during the week, terrible weather on the weekend. Um, but hopefully some some flying adventures to come good in the works. So stay tuned for that.
2: Very, very good. Well, we have um, made it through the news folder stuff and I noticed, yes. We are about to start the feedback. Excellent. Okay. So are you ready for that? Oh, I'm ready. Okay.
5: Incoming message.
2: We better hurry, because uh, soon it's going to be time for the installment of plane Tales. So let's knock out item one in the feedback folder from VC10Ron. What would you do? He says, after reading the American Airlines plane that had an emergency landing with a blown tire, it got me thinking. If any of you had a blown tire at takeoff, would you call call it an emergency emergency? and land back at the airfield, or would you just carry on to your destination and land there? Uh, the second option doesn't inconvenience the pass- or the uh, customers as much, I guess. Is there a certain per- protocol you have to follow, or is it entirely the captain's choice? Just interested. Thanks, VC-10. Ron, VC-10, by the way, is a mid-sized, narrow-body, long-range British jet airliner designed and built by Vickers Armstrong, Armstrong's Aircraft Limited and first flown at Brooklands, Surrey, in 1962. And by my father, not long after that. Excellent. And I remember seeing that. Uh, Nav took me to the Brooklands, and I think it was Brooklands Air Museum, wasn't it? Or I think that was where he took me. Anyway, um, great airplane. Um, the article to which he is referring is an incident, an American 737-800 at mm-hmm. Kingston, Jamaica, uh, and miami on may 7th 2019 tire depart uh, tire damage on departure hydraulic leak on landing this 737-800 was flying from kingston to miami with 172 passengers and six crew they were climbing out of kingston when the crew was uh, informed that debris had been found on the departure runway a tire and tire damage was suspected the crew decent, uh, decided to continue to miami Performed a low approach to runway 9 to have the tires inspected from the ground, which confirmed a tire was damaged. The crew positioned for another approach to runway 9, landed about 10 minutes after the low approach. The aircraft was disabled due to the tire damage and a hydraulic leak at the left main gear and was subsequently towed to the apron. Uh, So, uh, VC10 Ron is asking us, so is this... You know what would you do uh, in in this situation? And So I, from what I can gather from the uh, report on the Aviation Herald is that they you know performed their takeoff, they retracted the gear, the gear is all retracted, the the um, gear doors are closed, and then they find out from tower or whoever informed them, air traffic control, that they suspected that they may have uh, tire damage. Nick, what would you do?
3: once the gear is up, you've gone through that danger period because uh, if you have a blown tire uh, in that initial part of the takeoff, of course, the flailing rubber can cause damage. Uh, and uh, the when you try and lift the gear, uh, the loose rubber hanging out can jam the doors, etc., and, and cause problems inside the landing gear bay. Um, but once it's up, if there are no faults indicated, Then you've kind of got away with that bit, and there's no real decision because the gears up and tucked away. Now all you've got to worry about is the landing, and the next question is where's the best place to do the landing? Well, quite honestly, uh, uh, have been flown into uh, Kingston, Jamaica. Uh, and Miami, I'd much rather be in Miami, thank you very much. The runways are longer. They've got better firefighting facilities. It's where you want to go anyway. It's probably where your engineering is. Uh, There's currently no danger to the aircraft, uh, certainly if you've got no indications of warning or hydraulic leaks or hydraulic failures. So I think that's an entirely sensible decision, and uh, I would have done exactly what this captain did. I agree
2: completely. Now, if you experience a tire failure before you retract the gear, or if you're aware of it and thinking, oh, something's wrong with the tires or the landing gear system, then probably the toughest thing to do is to resist the urge to put the gear handle up. You know, just like, okay, let's leave the gear down. And then, you know, you can bring it back to where you took off, or if you might need to go out and burn off some fuel. or if you have an airplane that has uh, fuel um, dumping capability, you would do that to lower the weight of the aircraft. But as Captain Nick said, if in this situation, you've already gone through that. You've passed that time frame where they everything is retracted and um, you might as well take it to somewhere that you have the best uh, facilities to handle the situation. Runway 9 at Miami, as Nick knows and Dana and I know, is a very long runway, and it's a very wide runway as well. So it's a it's probably the best place to put that airplane down in this particular situation.
4: If if it was me, I would evaluate several things. I would think about where I am uh, as far as uh, the you know, landing. I don't think I want to go back into Kingston. It's actually kind
2: of a shorter runway. Yeah, you, you and, know, like where you want to lay over and what the yeah, food is yeah, like. Well, that,
4: yeah, those things. But, yeah. uh, you know, maintenance services available, you know, replacement. And, you know, my biggest thing is, you know, have the flight tank go look at the wing and, and you know, look at my engine instruments and... and if, if if everything is all normal, seeming to be normal, and, and you know, when I look at my engine instruments, of course, I'm going to check the hydraulics, I'm going to check the wheel, I'm going to check, you know, make sure my uh, all my uh, temperatures and my, my rotations and everything else are all normal. If I'm looking at all that, that's that's all the things I'm going to take into consideration. And if the airplane's flying normal and there's no no apparent really uh, emergent. Uh, damage to the aircraft and i i would agree with you know both uh, nick and, and and jeff i'm i'm gonna take the aircraft probably to uh to its destination unless uh, you know it, it's a remote place you know if i'm right. taking off from someplace like atlanta and i'm going to madison wisconsin i might think otherwise because obviously it's a shorter runway uh they don't have the maintenance services so i'd probably turn around in that case but mm-hmm. in this exact scenario I, I would have done the exact same thing
2: i i I think we all agree that we would have done exactly what this uh, crew did. I was looking at our uh, QRH uh, under tire failures. And um, if the landing gear is retracted, contact ATC and advise a possible debris on the runway. Contact flight dispatch to determine if flight should return. And then some landing considerations here. Avoid landing overweight. That's why you would want to uh, either burn fuel or dump fuel to lower the weight of the aircraft. Uh, In in our checklist on our airplane at Acme, uh, it says that flybys are not recommended. Uh, Now, in this case, the American 737 did a flyby for the tower controllers to look and see and confirm that they had tire damage. Um, Our quick response uh, handbook, uh, or is that the right uh, phrase? Quick reaction, quick quick response, whatever. QRH says. Quick reference handbook. Thank you. Quick reference. Thank you. Um, flybys are not recommended and use normal approach and landing techniques. It says, caution, do not hold the nose gear off the runway. If the landing gear was retracted, consider lowering the gear early to assess the condition. Use differential braking as needed to assist directional control. Uh, If the main gear tire or tires have failed, do not use auto brakes, which seems obvious to me. Uh, Expect adverse yaw braking effectiveness may be reduced, and minimize the landing roll through application of maximum reverse thrust if if able. Uh, If uncertain which tires have failed, assume the nose gear tire failure, but be ready to counter the effects of adverse yaw. After landing, taxi off the runway if possible. Notify ATC and notify flight dispatch. So that's what our ACME manual says for us to do and consider when it comes to tire failures
3: so i'm assuming jeff they're not recommending a fly pass because it's not something we ever practice uh the only time i've ever done it is in a simulator and you're probably more likely to mess that up than anything i mean uh not many airline pilots who used to uh floating past the tower at 100 feet or so yeah uh, whereas, you know, so it's completely out of the ordinary and probably not an ideal maneuver for most guys to do. Military guys probably done it a lot. Mm-hmm. And I certainly have many. I do. have. Yeah. So, but I mean, for the average bloke, I think that's probably a, a good recommendation. Good advice. That, that and maybe their um,
2: thinking is that even if they identify what you have, it's, what are you gonna do differently if you didn't know? <laughs> like yeah, you're going that's to do two the two same procedure. Exactly you know, right. The yeah. procedure
3: for landing doesn't change whether you've identified a burst tire or not. I right. mean yeah.
4: Yeah, but the, the only the only advantage to that would be is is like with our aircraft, Jeff, we only have two you know on each side, two main landing mm-hmm. gear and two in the nose. So it would be nice to know if we've lost one or both. I mean, it's yeah, not going to make But a how is that going to
2: change things. the way you do your approach and landing?
4: Well, I'm going to do a wheelie on the left hand side if my right hand side's blown and both tires are gone.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, I'm do a nice crosswind different. Land. <laughs> I'm
4: going to keep that right side or left side yeah. off as long as I possibly can. I, uh, uh, yeah, okay. No, I'm only kidding. Yeah, I'm really only kidding.
2: I think you know, uh, it, it doesn't state in our manual exactly why you know what the logic or reasoning is regarding why they recommend that we don't do a fly past or. But yeah, um, I'm sure because that, we don't want to spill
4: anybody's coffee.
2: Yeah, you don't want to bother those people in the tower. No,
4: These we don't bother them. The spill you know, coffee, get get you know, get a, a
3: royal. And uh, by the time you're on a fly past, every single news agency in the entire <laughs> country is going to be filming you. So. There
2: you go. That's probably a real the real reason. Get the darn airplane on the ground as fast yeah. as you can.
7: Should, don't should, don't let anyone know what's going on.
2: Just you know, quick quick. <laughs> That really is.
7: Passengers terrified. (laughs) Airliner plummets towards ground.
2: (laughs) Yes. Oh, I didn't read the other note. Do not make a PA to the passengers. Let them assume everything is okay.
3: (laughs) Yes, exactly right. Love it.
2: (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. Um, Moving on. Item two. Dave sent us some feedback. Uh, Hey there, APG crew. Newish listener here, but really getting into the show. I wanted to offer some info and experience on the topic of hypoxia training. That was discussed a few episodes back and how private pilots can experience it. The FAA Wings team, Aeromedical Services, and the PALS PALS organization recently teamed up, had a seminar at my local airport. They brought a chamber, a, a chamber, altitude chamber, I guess, picks attached for any pilot with at least a third class medical to try out. The experience consisted of a great briefing on what was about to happen to us. And then five minutes in the chamber to truly experience hypoxia. Everything is done under under supervision and your oxygen levels are watched via a pulse ox. Is that the thing, stuff they put on your finger or something? The oxygen?
7: Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Usually, I mean, it's just a little sensor that goes on your finger. It has a little... Light in it and it measures the
2: oxygen. Ah, is that what day? it does? The light uh, can tell how much
3: oxygen I you have. How does it, it tell? Tell? how does it do it? By color I, I have all. no idea. <laughs> I always wonder that. I think, well, you're just putting a clip well, on I'm my asking, finger. Uh, why didn't we ask a doctor? Yeah. I don't know how
7: yeah. these things work. I just know what I need to look <laughs> doctor, for numbers wise on the other <laughs> end.
3: Let us
2: know. <laughs> uh, I think
7: it has to do with how the light passes through and it measures the amount okay. of uh, going back to you know what we talked about before with uh, you know. Uh, hemoglobin and how it
2: binds oxygen and
3: it's it's the
2: face. i don't know how
7: about it's i look it up and i'll get back to you at the end of this uh
2: no don't worry about it we don't that's care.
3: the correct answer. <laughs> yeah.
2: uh anyway uh, to alert you when it's time to put the mask on during the five minutes they uh go around did somebody say go around no um and have people complete simple tasks to show how it affects your thinking and motor skills it was a great experience and i hi- highly recommend it to any ga pilot out there as the effects can occur even at low altitudes, and it's worth knowing how you will react. My personal symptoms were lightheadedness and distorted vision, but people experienced all kinds of things, as discussed in the debrief afterwards. They did mention they will have the chamber at Oshkosh for those attending, and that they do move it around sometimes, so it's worth seeing if it's coming to your local area. For those really itching to try it out, the FAA offers the training regularly at their Oklahoma city location. I think we mentioned that on a previous show and uh, we'll put this uh, all information in the show notes. Ooh. Yes, Steph. Yes. Yes. So
7: Between, between Micah and the chat room and myself, we were yeah. both like halfway right.
2: Yeah.
7: Uh, so the pulse oximeter works by comparing how much red light and infrared light is absorbed by the blood. So depending on the ratio of the oxygenated hemoglobin and deoxygenated hemoglobin that's present, the ratio will be different and it compares it to tell you, uh,
2: what your oxygen saturation. Well, I was going to say that, but I didn't want to embarrass you. So,
3: ah, so it wouldn't work on a Vulcan or the Royal Family because they have blue blood.
0: <laughs>
3: good, good point.
2: Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to go there. That's yeah. <laughs>
3: okay. Okay. Um, Vulcans have two hearts, Steph. Hey, you know what?
7: Is it That's Star Trek.
3: Star <laughs> Hey, you know what? You know what time it is? It's, Please say uh, Plane Tales. Uh, 18, it's
2: 1846 in uh, oh, yeah. Eastern Time Zone. It but is 1846. It's, also, just, just 1846. it's also about the two hour mark in the show, which is the time we usually try to play the best part of the show. And you all know what that means. It's the old pilot's plain Tales.
7: Thank God.
3: The old pilot's plain tails, Dax on D-Day. The C-47 Skytrain was one of the most versatile and beloved workhorses of the Second World War. It was the militarized version of the Douglas DC-3 airliner, an aircraft that had revolutionized air transport in the 1930s and 40s. Its lasting effect on the civilian and military aviation industry made it one of the most significant transport aircraft ever produced. A twin-engined, all-metal monoplane with a tailwheel, it was developed as a larger and improved version of the earlier DC-2. It had many exceptional qualities compared to previous aircraft designs. It was fast for the time, had a good range and could operate from short runways. It was both reliable and easy to maintain and could carry passengers in greater comfort than ever before. Before the war it pioneered many air travel routes particularly across the continental United States and it even made worldwide flights possible. It is considered the first airliner that could profitably carry just passengers. The C-47 differed from the civilian DC-3 in numerous modifications, the main being the inclusion of the cargo door and hoist attachment, a strengthened floor and a shortened tail cone for glider towing shackles. It was also fitted with an Astrodome in the roof to allow astro-navigation. Position fixing by taking star shots with a sextant. The C-47 had a crew of four: two pilots, a radio operator, and a navigator. Only 63 feet long, it had an impressive span of over 95 feet, and was powered by two Pratt & Whitney Twin Wasp 14-cylinder radial engines with three-bladed constant-speed props. Although it was unpressurized, it could reach 26,000 feet and carried 28 troops for nearly 1,400 nautical miles. The Royal Air Force version was named the Dakota. Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander, said of it, Four pieces of equipment that most senior officers came to regard as amongst the most vital to our success in Africa and Europe were the bulldozer, the jeep, the two-ton truck, and the C-47 airplane. Curiously, none of these is designed for combat. The famous aviation author, Len Morgan, said of it, The C-47 groaned. It protested. It rattled. It leaked oil. It ran hot. It ran cold. It ran rough. It staggered along on hot days and scared you half to death. Its wings flexed and twisted in a horrifying manner, and it sank back to earth with a great sigh of relief. But it flew, and it flew, and it flew. The lead 47 pilot on D-Day was Lieutenant Colonel Joel Crouch, whose job it was to drop Pathfinder paratroops at Saint-Germain-de-Vaville in France. Cloud cover made life hard for the navigators, and some jumpers ended up far from their targets, whilst others came under withering anti-aircraft fire. But the first four drop zone teams arrived about 15 minutes after midnight, and although scattered, the paratroopers were soon able to set up their lights. D-Day had started. 832 C-47s flew on the night of June the 5th, and by the end, 23,400 British and American paratroops had been dropped. 75 years later, on the anniversary of D-Day, and some of those C-47s are back. One is Betsy's biscuit bomber, and I was lucky enough to get to talk to some of the crew who manned this venerable aircraft. Nick Camacho is a friend of the Airline Pilot Guy show, and I asked him what he thought it would have been like for a C-47 pilot on a D-Day mission.
1: Yeah, so the, the C-47, uh, obviously it's, its main mission, or the, the most well-known mission that it had was uh, dropping the paratroopers. There were Pathfinder airplanes that went out um, earlier than the, than the main uh, wave, and then there was a, you know, a great number of airplanes that went over uh, full of paratroopers, 28, uh, 26 or 28 uh, paratroopers in the airplanes. Uh, but the airplanes also uh, did a, quite a lot of uh, glider towing, And not only were they toying gliders, uh, horses and and, wakos, but they would do double glider tows. And so if you look at, you know, some of those combat gliders that they use, they don't exactly look like um, efficient, uh, mean machines to begin with. And then they'd put two of those behind a C-47. And we, uh, one of the guys that actually taught my dad to fly, he was a very good friend of my dad's, um, he flew EC-47s in Vietnam, which is the kind of the spooky version of the airplane. And his dad flew C forty sevens in World War II on D Day, uh, and flew two missions. And I don't remember what his. I believe his first mission was a paratro- paratrooper job mission, but I'm right now I'm just not sure. But his second mission was a double glider tow uh, over the beaches. So that's a so that's a pretty neat thing that they did. And then also the airplanes. Uh, you know, in the later days were also big logistical um, staples. They were able to move not only food and munitions, but they were able to move big guns, howitzers. Um, our airplane with the big double folding cargo door, you could actually drive a jeep up into it so they could move jeeps. Um, so they uh, they did pretty much everything except deliver the munitions to the enemies. <laughs> you know, it's hard, for you, it's hard for me to imagine what the, uh, what it would have been like at their age and their experience level in life and in the airplane to have to, you know, go up and and do what they were doing. It's kind of funny. Just today we were taking off, and I mentioned that you know the winds were out of limits, and um, I was looking at the windsock, and it was a direct cr- crosswind of about 14 knots. And I was flying in the right seat. I was performing the pilot non-flying function so I didn't have to worry about it. But I remember looking at that windsock, thinking. Yeah, that's probably about the, the edge of my personal limits there. So I, I don't know. Even if I was supposed to make this takeoff, I, I may hand it off. You know, and then to think back to those guys being 10 or 12 years younger than me, having you know, a quarter of the amount of flying time that I had, and then having to go launch up into uh, all sorts of weather conditions, and then to get there and have the type of uh, defense that they had to fly through and fly around and everything, it's, it's really kind of unfathomable for me to even imagine that as I sit here looking at the wind thinking, "Eh, I don't know if I want to go flying today with the wind. (laughs) As, you know, in the past decade or so, I think the the movies and the documentaries and everything have gotten much better at providing kind of a more realistic look at what actually happened and everything. And probably my single favorite sequence in any sort of movie or film or TV show or anything is the last two minutes of the first episode of of Brothers, which is when they line up all those DC-3s And uh, it's just a minute and a half of those DC-3s taking off and going by the camera and putting the gear up. And I love that. But uh, another thing about that uh, series that just gets me is, you know, it's, you know, any amount of of loss of life is tragic. And that sort of, in any event and in war, it's horrible. Uh, And, you know, I've, growing up, I, I was not quite of age to understand anything in the Gulf War. So really uh, 9-11 and then the events uh, since 9-11 have been my only life experience with that. And so the numbers that I associate with loss regarding war uh, and the numbers that seem big to me, you know, you look back at any one day, how many how many troops we've lost in the last 15 or 20 years, and it just pales in comparison to the numbers you read about in the war. Or even if you watch something like Band of Brothers, when they have the scene where those guys are flying in uh, over the beaches early in the morning and just the level of loss of life every time an airplane goes down, whether it's a, in the D-Day invasion, you know, you're losing a crew of three or four guys plus 20 or 30 jumpers, or even when you look at the B-17 raids we had where they were losing dozens of airplanes and each airplane that went down we were losing 10 crew members. It's just, for me, it's hard to fathom the level, the day-to-day level of loss of life that they had uh, in, that, in those events through 1944 and 1945.
3: My father had once flown the DC-3 and I asked Nick just what it was like to fly the aircraft.
1: Uh, it's, a, it's an incredibly fun airplane to fly. It's a little challenging. Uh, my background is in, you know, it, it varies for people based on their background. We have guys come in who have uh, lots of big airplane experience, airline captains who uh, have the, the idea of a checklist flow and a two-man crew and all that down fine. and have no problem with the wingtip clearance on a 100-foot wingspan airplane and have no problem sitting 15 feet off the ground in the cockpit, uh, but then you s- you stick them in a conventional gear airplane with a free castering tailwheel with a lock, and uh, just watching them taxi to the end of the runway can be a little interesting sometimes. Uh, and for me, it's kind of the opposite. I'm, I come, my background's small airplanes. Uh, I fly Luscombs and Bonanzas mainly. And so for me, I, I'm pretty comfortable in tailwheel airplanes, but. Uh, sometimes I struggle, if I'm out of the seat for a while, I struggle to, uh, I struggle to have a good flare because of the, the sight, uh, sight picture is a little different because I'm sitting so high. And then one thing that I really struggle with is the airplane is uh, very sluggish. You know, it's got, it's got a lot of inertia and uh, you can, it's not common to, you can go through a burble and you could swing the yoke all the way over to the stops and it'll sit at the stops for a second or a second and a half and the airplane will start to react and you'll get to about halfway back to where you want to be, and then you come back to neutral, and then the airplane will kind of slow into the neutral point where you want it to be. So it's uh, slightly different just in the control throws you have to put in and and the amount of thinking ahead you have to do because it's so slow to react. But uh, as far as, you know, sitting, sitting on the ground at the end of the runway and spooling up those big radial engines and, running them up to 2,400 horsepower and smoking down the runway. It's a, it's a pretty unique and awesome experience.
3: Now, I knew Nick would be doing a lot of formation flying during the Dax over Normandy mission, and I was curious to know how they managed when they were on the left-hand side of a formation, since the captain normally sits on the left.
1: So that's an interesting question. The way that we've been operating the last two weeks uh, we've actually, since we brief beforehand, and we basically know everything we're doing for the whole flight. If we're going to be flying on the left side, we actually put the pilot flying in the right seat. Um, and so on this trip, we have uh, five pilots. My dad, Ben, Sherman, and Shane are all PIC rated. My dad doesn't do much of the flying these days. He likes to just kind of hang out and wrench on the airplane and wipe the airplane down. Uh, but uh, Ben Sherman and, and Shane are all uh, real active pilots, um, and uh, Sherman's actually our, our fast, qualified guy, and he's our by far our most uh, current and proficient formation guy. And so uh, Shane's been doing a lot of work with him, especially back in the States before he came over here. Shane did a lot of formation work with him. But uh, for all the big functions where we're flying in formation, you know, it'll be Sherman, and he will sit on the side of the airplane that is appropriate to where it will be. Um, And, you know, the airplane is a two-crew airplane, um, and the only difference between—obviously, there's differences, like, if you're sitting on the left side, you're going to be holding the yoke with your left hand and the throttles with your right hand. But as far as actual functionality, the only difference between the seats is that the cow flap controls are on the far right wall. So if you had to fly that airplane single seat, it would actually make more sense to sit on the right side because you can reach everything from the right side easily. If you're sitting on the left side and you're by yourself you have to reach all the way across and run the cow flaps from the other side. So that's kind of the only major difference between the seats.
3: Now having sat inside Betsy's biscuit bomber and uh, looked at the cockpit, I was curious to ask Nick how they got the gear up and down.
1: So the gear is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting situation. It's a hydraulically actuated gear and then it's got a mechanical latch. So we actually have two levers in the airplane. So when we take off and rotate, the pilot in command, or the pilot flying, I should say, uh, calls for the gear up. And uh, the first thing that the uh, pilot not flying will do is he'll reach down and we have the mechanical latch, which is a handle directly to the right of the pilot's seat. And it's got a little uh, loop latch over it. So when I say it's the mechanical uh, latch, it act- it's actually has a- there's a mechanical latch in the landing gear um, that is actuated by a cable, by this handle. And then this handle itself, has a little loop latch that goes over it. So you reach down, you uh, flick the loop latch down so that this handle's free to come up, and you pull, the, pull this handle all the way up. And at that point, uh, the gear is no longer mechanically locked down, but it's still kinda down by gravity. And at that point, you reach back and there's a second landing gear handle um, on the hydraulic panel behind the right seat, and you bring that handle into the up position, and that uh, pressurizes the hydraulic system on the upside of the landing gear. And that brings the landing gear up, and the landing gear comes all the way up and builds pressure uh, until the landing gear is in the up position, and then the pressure falls off, and then you put the handle back to neutral. So when we're actually flying around, the gear is only held up by hydraulic pressure. And every once in a while, we'll get the gear start to sag a little bit, and you actually have to reach down and bob the handle up for uh, five seconds or so, and you suck the gear back up, and then. Uh, And then putting it down is basically just the opposite opposite scenario. So you put the hydraulic handle down and it pressurizes the downside of the gear. The gear goes all the way down. Uh, And then while the landing gear uh, hydraulic handle is down, then you reach down and you put the mechanical gear handle, the mechanical latch handle down, put the loop up, and then you reach back and put the hydraulic handle into neutral. And only when the hydraulic handle is in neutral and the mechanical latch handle is down and latched will you get two green lights. So you know, most airplanes you, uh, you flip the switch, I have, a, I have a debonair which has electric gear and uh, my gear is merely, I put the switch up, the gear does its thing and after a couple seconds I get a couple of green lights. So I flip the switch, I see the lights and I'm good to go. In this airplane you actually, the, the check for the gear is you run everything and then you look at the hydraulic handle and you say the hydraulic handle is neutral, the mechanical, the uh, latch handle is down and latched, we have hydraulic pressure in the gear and we have two green lights and, the, and all those four steps are done to complete the landing gear down checklist item.
3: (laughs) So that was a fairly strange procedure. I wondered if the C-47 had any other weird foibles.
1: Uh, A couple of the interesting things for me are that from my vantage point as a little GA guy, is uh, we have pressure carburetors. So our mixture controls only consist of auto-rich and auto-lean, so we don't have to fiddle with mixtures or anything. We just take off an auto-rich and we move it back to auto-lean and it's... Incredibly simple compared to a little GA airplane where you're always dialing in the, the mixture. Uh, and then the other thing that I find kind of funny is that we have five systems on the airplane, basically, that are hydraulically actuated. And uh, that's the obvious ones, which are the landing gear and the brakes, the cow flaps and the wing flaps. And then the fifth system on our airplane that is actually hydraulically operated is our windshield wipers. We have a little hydraulic valve, and that runs our windshield wipers.
3: Really? I asked Nick hydraulic windshield wipers why not electric ones
1: man we we wonder that every day because our little windshield wiper valves leak all the time and they're in the worst possible place because they're above the yokes and they're always dripping on your knee and so uh electric motors would have been a lot more convenient i think
3: (laughs) yeah i have to agree now i wanted to finish up by asking nick what his very favorite flight in betsy had been
1: I would have to say up until now, um, we did a, about two years ago, we did a show in Michigan where uh, they tried to uh, do a bunch of things with the reenactment jumpers, like, similar to what we're dropping. Well, actually, some of the guys here are guys that we dropped in Michigan, and they, they actually uh, spent a ton of effort and resources into getting as many uh, D-Day invasion airplanes uh, to their air show so they could do a reenactment jump out of invasion scheme only airplanes, and I think we ended up with... Five C forty sevens and a C forty six, all in D Day invasion markings. So that was pretty cool, uh, sitting on and and it was just Shane and I. Shane's another one of our our captains. He's the guy who I flew with today, and he's a college roommate of mine. So it's actually a lot of fun spending time with him. And then we were the only two pilots on that trip. So we flew the airplane all the way across the country, and then uh, I don't know if I could pick out one flight, but the two or three show flights we did there were, you know, we all lined up on the runway and we were number three in a flight of five and uh, I could just stick my head out the window and, and look forward and there were two airplanes in front of me and then there were two airplanes behind me. There's a C-46 sitting on a taxiway ready to roll on and then we all got up in formation or in, in a kind of a trail setup and, and dropped our jumpers and that was pretty impressive. Obviously, the stuff that we're doing here <laughs> definitely rivals that if not exceeds it, so. Well, that's it for this plane tale, but there's more audio to come
3: from both Nick and from the chief pilot of uh, Betsy's Biscuit Bomber, and that'll be coming out very shortly. So my great thanks to Nick and the members of Betsy's team for allowing me to meet them and to marvel at their wonderful aircraft.
2: Wow, that's exciting. I I felt like we were there with you and Nick at Duxford,
3: it was marvelous. Nick was such a knowledgeable chap to uh, talk about, and he's obviously got such a fantastic passion for uh, the aircraft and the work he does with it. And uh, he was incredibly um, enthusiastic. So it was for me, it was brilliant. I I could have talked to him for and the rest of the crew for hours, but sadly, it was uh, you know uh, you know just limited a little bit by uh, our time but i had a lovely uh, uh time looking around the aircraft watching uh, uh nick uh and shane uh fly it around the uh local area around the circuit uh, it was absolutely brilliant uh, and everyone was very kind so i had a thoroughly nice time
7: and the pictures you've shared are fantastic
3: I was lucky because off. I could get a little bit of access that perhaps the rest of the crowd behind the barriers couldn't. I was able to get some angles that you know more represented uh you know what might have it might have looked like on the day. So I was mm-hmm. very pleased and thanks again to Nick for uh, um you know, taking me under his arm and letting me uh, get nice and close and and also uh, to even climb up into the flight deck. And I, I tell you what, I was all on my own. There was no one else around. I was sitting in the seat of this uh, flight deck and I was just, you know, it was very emotional because the old man, he flew his first operational aircraft in the airline industry was a DC-3. Very, very similar. And there I was sitting in... What was effectively the same airplane thinking uh, i wonder what this would have been like uh, for a young man uh, out of the war and flying around uh, the dusty airfields of australia uh, in the 1940s it must have been uh, amazing on the screen behind me i have one of the fantastic photos it doesn't do it justice
2: because the colors are a little off but uh, that nick took of uh, the reenactors and uh, the uh, biscuit betty's biscuit bomber Behind me, we're going to put all of the amazing photos that Nick took when he made his visit. We'll put those in the show notes so you can all see um, just the amazing sights there. Oh, Nick, thanks thank very much! You,
5: thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, another one of the aircraft that made the journey from the United States over for the the the, the Normandy anniversary was an aircraft that is called That's All Brother. And and that aircraft was the lead aircraft in the Normandy invasion. And that airplane was uh, weeks away from being scrapped. And an organization here in the States called the Commemorative Air Force realized the historic value of that airplane and they restored it back to its D-Day condition. So that was probably one of the airplanes you saw sitting on the ramp, but that one is an extremely historic airplane from here in the states.
3: Isn't it amazing? I I just take my hat off to the enthusiasts, the the guys who have the money to be able to and cuz all these are privately Looked after, owned, but the, it it is you know it's such a charitable thing to do to keep these aircraft alive for us all to see, uh, particularly the ones with such enormous historical interest. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm just in awe uh, all the guys that do this kind of thing. It's brilliant. You know, I was. Um Waking up
2: very early, uh, it was either yesterday or the day before, and I had Fox News Channel on in the room, and they started showing some a report from uh, Normandy and the, uh, or I think that's where they were. But anyway, they were showing some of the DC3s involved in this uh, reenactment, and guess which one they chose? Betty's biscuit bomber, and they, oh, were they interviewing, are interviewing hey. the uh, the the skipper. Uh, the, the head guy, uh, does he have like gray hair and a gray mustache?
3: They all do Jeff. Yeah.
2: Well, <laughs>
3: except except Nick, he's, he's quite a, yeah. <laughs> well, um,
2: yeah, he's, he's too young, but anyway, I, I thought, Oh, Oh, I, I know these people. Yeah. I didn't see Nick, but, uh, or his dad, but I did see, uh, uh the, uh, the airplane and I thought that is the so dream. cool.
3: Sherman Smoot, who is the does the first half of the next plane tale, mm-hmm. uh, then we finish off with Nick. And that's kind of more of the nuts and bolts of the flight out mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, that I, I found uh, the description of how uh, Sherman flew the aircraft out. Uh, it was great. And, uh, of course, we had to do a little bit of uh, phantom talk, because he's an uh, F-4. Yes. A well, I mean, he can't be, you know, he's a nice guy, but he can't be perfect. <laughs>
2: That'd be perfect. And what's more, (laughs) he likes the DC-10. Ha! Really? Wow. Yeah. Not a lot do. Um, (laughs) But uh, I was going to say when he was uh, describing the uh, the control uh, responsiveness, I'm thinking Dana, that sounds a lot like the airplane we fly. Maybe not to the same same level, but you know there's some. Do you lag have hydraulic
7: and... windshield wipers too?
2: No, we don't have hydraulic window windshield wipers. Yeah, I,
3: but that, that caught my interest too yeah. when uh, Nick mentioned that. I went, <laughs> I, there. He said there are five things that, and I went wipers. You kidding yeah, me?
4: That's crazy. Yeah, it remotely looks like our, our bird. Oh, hey, it's a Douglas. It,
3: it yes,
2: it like is. The same I mean, of, and it, the control it, system is pretty much the same as the control system in the uh, Mad Dog.
3: And it's, uh, Douglas knows, you know, the windshield layout, that kind of sharp uh, windshield uh, cut that they have. Uh, it's classically Douglas, I think, because mm-hmm. they, they they all look the same. Yeah.
2: Definitely see the
3: uh, DNA in the airplane yep. that we fly. All right.
2: Well, that's awesome. I can't wait to hear part two. And, uh, again, a reminder that uh, you need to check out our show notes because that's where we are going to f- see those fantastic uh, photos that – Nick took. Okay, let's continue on. Uh, This is from Tim, and he sent us some audio
6: feedback. Hi, Captain Jeff. This is Tim from Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm a private pilot. I guess you could call me the private pilot guy. In any event, I've really enjoyed listening to your airline pilot guy podcast over the past five or six years. In the shameless plug category, I'm going to say that I fly with an awesome flying club, the Wings of Carolina, based at the Raleigh Executive Jetport Tango Tango Alpha in Sanford, North Carolina. I started listening to your podcast back when you were a solo act. You had a great show and did an awesome job. Once you started adding co-host, the quality of the show increased and it was even better than it was before, as I'm sure you will agree. I enjoyed listening to Miami Rick back then. I always thought of him as the Cliff Clavin of the airlines. Now you have Captain Nick and Captain Dana, and they are both awesome and bring great things to the podcast. One of my favorite parts of the podcast is Captain Nick's plane tales. He does an awesome job bringing his stories to life. Dr. Steph, the lovely Dr. Steph, increase the classiness of your show several fold and I really enjoy her contributions as well. So here's my question that I'd like to pose to your crew and maybe even the entire APG community. It has to do with the way airlines board their planes. Now I understand that they want to get their first class passengers, the very important people, on first so that they can start pampering them in the way to which they have become accustomed. My concern is the way the rest of us steerage passengers are loaded. The airlines seem to load the passengers such that the first seats in the front of the plane are taken up initially. What happens is the passengers are trying to stuff their overloaded baggage into the overhead compartments. And while they're doing that, the rest of us are standing in line behind them waiting to get on. This really slows things down. Next, they have to squeeze their way past the overweight guy on the aisle seat, get themselves in and all situated. Once that's done, then the next few seats can go through the same song and dance. My question is, why not have the passengers load such that the first people that get on the plane walk all the way to the rear of the plane and start doing their readiness at the aft of the plane, While they're doing that, the next few passengers can get on a few seats ahead of them and do the same thing. Meanwhile, this is not holding up the boarding process very much at all. It seems to me that this would greatly speed up the process, probably cut the time in half, and be much, much more efficient. Now, there's probably a good reason why they don't do this, but for the life of me, I can't think of what it might be. I would love to hear your take on this. And also, The next time you're in Raleigh, I'd love to get together and buy you a couple of IPAs. Also in the seamless plug category, we could perhaps go to the Aviator Brewing Company in Fuquay Verena, which is one of my favorites. Thanks again for your podcast, and I look forward to hearing your answers about this burning question.
2: Inquiring minds want to know. Yeah, we've talked about this several times um, in the almost 10 years of the airline pilot guy show. And, uh, we have no idea. Basically is the answer. Uh,
7: actually, I can answer this a little bit. Oh, well, okay. Steph. Um, it yeah. It is something that is actually the one that brings class by...
2: to the, uh, to the podcast. Go ahead. And
7: sometimes some knowledge. occasionally. <laughs> <laughs>
2: sometimes <laughs>
7: not always sometimes i don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> here i might not know what i'm talking about but i am fairly certain fairly confident of what mm-hmm. i'm about to say mm-hmm. um, haven't looked at it in a long time to verify and had not listened to your feedback before this moment so um clearly i've prepared well however um
2: normal preparation <laughs>
7: yes <laughs> standard uh this is actually ex- uh, studied by the airlines or at least by folks who are trying to make, uh, airlines operate more efficiently. They would certainly like to get the passengers on board as, um, efficiently and quickly as possible because that turns down or that brings down their turnaround time. Um, and for, as far as I know, from what they've looked at, they, you know, that makes good sense. Put the people who on the plane, uh, who are getting, or who are seated at the back on first, because then they can walk all the way down the aisle to the end, you know, put their bags up, get situated in their seats, and then people can continue filling in from the back forward. You think that would work. Um, in in reality, for whatever reason, it's not any faster. Um, so a lot of, and airlines have also tried other things like uh, seat all of the customers in the window seats first and then work their way to the middle to see if that makes a difference, thinking people will get out of the aisles as they move into their seats. That doesn't work. Um, or at least it's not, you know, sufficiently faster. So... Uh, Glenn actually in the uh, chat room brings up a good point that um, people pay good money to get on the airplane first, and that's something that is beneficial to the airlines. They can charge more for people who want to uh, pay more to be the first on the aircraft to put their bags overhead, um, regardless of where they're sitting. Um, you know, Famously, Southwest Airlines, and uh, I think there's... Is there a carrier like that in Europe too? I don't know if Ryan AirSign seats or not. I think they do. But I think they, um, they I think they do now.
2: They do now, but they, they were yeah. like Southwest before. Yeah.
7: So picking your own seat is actually fairly efficient, um, because people aren't gonna stand around and all try to crowd crowd into the same row at the same time. Um yeah, there's a lot of different ways to do it, and I don't know that anyone is any more uh any faster and, than you,
4: unless you're boarding a 73900, which has a pole on its butt, you don't want everybody on the back side of the airplane at once because then it would fall on its butt.
2: That might that would be bad, be yeah, uh, an issue. I'm just
4: saying what David said, you know, I'm just yeah.
3: repeating what he said. Oh, David, come on, David. Don't let him talk anymore.
4: Sorry about that, guys.
5: <laughs> Truth hurts.
3: Um, yeah, there is actually a fantastic video I watched about. Uh, it showed the um, the actual. Uh, efforts made and the different types of boarding and and how they varied and definitely going to the back first is not the quickest yeah uh, and, and and steph uh, hit the nail on the head when she said uh it's actually uh, which seat whether you're in the window the middle or the aisle seat that makes a significant difference as opposed to which row you're going into uh, and there is a complicated combination. it's like an algorithm
7: yeah yep
3: which would be perfect, but nobody would ever stick to it. Uh, You know, passengers push in, passengers don't do the right thing, they get in the wrong seat, blah, blah, blah. And random, just letting the whole airplane board at the same time randomly is actually quicker than trying to make people go to the correct areas at the right time. It's really weird. I didn't the bussers do a thing on
7: They They may have. And, and they didn't yep.
3: really even come to a
2: conclusion from what no. I there, there
4: is no conclusion to it. Yeah. No. But what would actually help it out and help boarding faster is instead of charging for check bags, let sure. those go free and charge for carry-on bags, Yeah, i.e. Mm-hmm. rollerboard bags. Because actually that is, I think, the biggest uh, mm-hmm. uh, hindrance to boarding, yep. and, and 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 you know, of course, you get towards the end, and people still bring on the rollerboard bags, and there's no space. And now, all of a sudden, you have you know everybody bringing the the bags towards the front of the airplane so they can be checked. I mean, that truly is the biggest hindrance. So, if if the airlines are smart, they would go ahead and start charging. You know, of course, you know if you have status with the airline, you you don't charge for the the rollerboards, and that's what they kind of do with the boarding process now. Is that they Try to board their higher priority, higher higher value customers up front, in, in you know, start boarding them earlier, so Although they I have might, I might
7: argue that those folks are the ones who travel a whole lot more, and they're perhaps a little <clears throat> bit more efficient at the process. They're
4: anyways. very efficient. Yeah. They're very efficient. So that's the, the you know, that's why I'm saying you know, don't charge them. But you know, the everyday right. customer that comes along and flies once a year, or you know, a couple times a year, maybe, uh, you know don't charge to check a bag let them check the bags and then the carry ons, you know, okay. you one personal carry on no roller boards. If you bring a roller board on, we charge you for it. It, it would make that boarding process let's so just, much more efficient. Let's just face
2: it. The problem in all of Is this people, people. yep. you got it. Well,
7: <laughs> welcome to my Friday, Jeff, Fed, FedEx, UPS.
2: Let's go. If we just eliminate the people, we wouldn't have this problem.
7: Yeah. I've been True. saying that all day. <laughs> anyway, actually, um, Mark Ravoff in the chat room brings up another interesting point of um, if you can board the front door and the back door at the, the rear door at the same time. Um, I've done that at small airports, and it does seem to go quite a bit faster because if you've doubled the Makes amount of sense. entry points, yeah. and that does help. Not, you can't do that everywhere. But you know, again, Southwest has—I
2: don't know, Steph. If you've—I know Whoa, you fly a Southwest a lot—but uh-huh. I've seen some places where they have like a jetway that goes to the one left door, and then they have a jetway that actually extends up and over the wing, the left what? wing, and then into where the. Where have you seen this? I've seen it at uh, Bradley and a couple of other places. Um, which just I, every time I see it, I go, "Ooh, that does not look like it's a safe thing to do," because it actually is going over part of the airplane to get to the... I have never uh, seen that. Oh, okay. Well, I, I was hoping that you had had. But uh, anyway... To be uh, fair, I
7: actually don't... I don't think I've ever uh, flown in or out of Bradley.
2: We used to uh, do the... Uh, you've been taking more of that ambient again, Jeff. Yeah, <laughs> Might be, or maybe just drinking too much.
3: Um, <laughs> but really,
2: what is too much? What's the definition? Uh, um, it, there's no such thing. But
4: yeah. <laughs> on a more serious note, also accountability for, for weight, that would be a safer bet as well, because people carry so much on the airplane that that truthfully is not accounted for, for weight. Is that really going
2: to speed up the process though?
4: It would speed up the process. Absolutely. Hmm. It would speed up the process. Plus we'd have better accountability. How much weights on the actual airplane? Uh, Who cares about that? Oh, no, who cares? Yeah, who cares?
3: It's always way more than what they. Well, say then you'll start weighing the passengers and charging them for that weight. Then, well, yeah, I, I, and there's and some airlines are that do that they're, because they're, then they're, all of a sudden you're, the trim's well, going to change. You're
7: a, yeah, yeah, you're on a little, uh, you know.
4: I don't think you know, I fit the typical crew profile weight.
7: I've been weighed for for island hopping flights.
4: Yeah, there are we, some the airlines, airlines we have talking about at
3: half price.
7: I should go at half price, and I never have yeah. any luggage either. Free. No, I know. Should go free. I want a discount.
3: You yeah. do. If you can some dental floss,
4: it's all stuff
7: needs. But they, let, they usually let me sit up front, too, so that's I'll, I'll take it. I'll continue to pay. What did you say?
2: I dental? don't know. D- I don't Dana's know. had a lot of bourbon. <laughs> that's all I can tell you about. <laughs> I actually
3: haven't. <laughs> you could have really had And he's got an argumentative as well. Private, private pilot not. guy from Raleigh?
0: Yes, you are.
7: Perhaps sometimes we will have to get together and have some hog-wild IPA and debate the merits of... Um, how to best board an aircraft somewhere?
2: I want to be there too. Okay, fine. Me too. All right. It
7: might
4: sure. be boarding.
2: Boring. boring. <laughs> yeah. Huh? Yeah, you haven't had too much. Um, so let's since somebody mentioned Mark Roboff in the chat room, I believe it was Steph. You said I something. Did. Uh we have some audio feedback. If you're wondering what what Mark's voice sounds like, uh, and Micah, we all know what Micah's great voice sounds like. Um, Micah and Mark got together and recorded some audio for us. So let's take a listen.
8: Hey, it's your main man, Micah, here. And I'm at the Maine Diner. And yes, that is Maine with an E. And it's in Wells, Maine, about, oh, 30 or 40 miles south of me in Portland. But I came down here for a very special reason. I came down here to meet up with a great guy. And we've only just met, and it's like we're old pals. Who flew in from california to do some things in the area i'll let him tell you about it but it's a good friend now mark roboff mark welcome to maine oh thank you it's good to be back i uh spent a lot of time
9: in maine and grew spent summers growing up in a gunkwit. i knew i wasn't going to have too much time to spend uh, up here this year so uh, i turned uh, thursday night on a work trip in boston the opportunity to come up and uh meet you Micah here at the main diner. It's a lovely place. I haven't been here in a couple of years. Food is as good as it always has been.
8: It's been a long time for me since I've been here too. And yeah, the food was great. But you work in the aviation industry. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you here and the kind of aviation work that you do?
9: Sure. Um, <clears throat> so I, I do uh, work in information technology. I've been supporting the aviation industry for about five, six years. Um, Fully dedicated, about eight nine years on and off. Uh, beyond that, and uh, I do a lot of work uh, with the uh, defense side of the vis- of the business, with the aircraft manufacturing side of the business. I've done a lot of work building systems that will predict uh, maintenance needs for airplanes, um, which is a very interesting technical side of the business. But but essentially. Uh, If you can predict when you're going to have a maintenance problem on an airplane and you avoid that uh, delay or that uh, cancellation, which, you know, we've all as frequent flyers been
8: uh, party to
9: now and then, uh, you can save airlines hundreds of millions of dollars a year.
8: So, you know, you said predictive maintenance, and that's something that just fascinates me because when I think about predictive maintenance, well, I think about my car and I get an oil change every six months or 6,000 miles. But predictive maintenance, how can you predict maintenance and what's going to fail? It's a great question. So uh,
9: airplanes are, are you know, complex beasts, right? And they have millions of parts. And what's interesting about you know your car is beyond an oil change, if you have a problem, if you have that check engine light, you, know, you go to the dealer or if it's under warranty, you go to your garage of choice and they'll... You know, take the car for a day, they'll open up the hood, they'll diagnose it, they'll see what's going on, they'll order the part, and they'll replace it. And yeah, essentially, that's what life is like, typically, with an airplane. Right? There's a problem, someone's going to walk up to the gate, and they're going to go understand, okay, well, what's going on here? They might open up the airplane equivalent of a hood, right? It's usually a, a panel or a pat somewhere on the engine or in the cockpit, um, and they'll, they'll diagnose it, and then they'll, they'll, they'll fix it. Um, Airplanes, though, because they are so complex, they record a lot of information, right? And you can take that information about how the airplane is running, about how the engines are running. You can take vibration data, temperature data, failure data, and you can run it through uh, lots of computer algorithms that look at, essentially, what the airplane was doing when... You last had a problem, right? Taking taking that pattern, right? You know, if you find out, okay, well, what was going on with the engine temperature or the vibration of certain components when you had maybe an engine out issue, right? You can start monitoring monitoring those things and uh, try to predict in the future, right, <clears throat> when an engine issue is going to happen again. So. Uh, you look at a, at, a, at a modern airliner, like a 737 or an A320, maybe one of the wide-body uh, jets, you know, there are typically six or seven components uh, that, because of what they do, right, are, are big maintenance ticket issues, right? engines, the flight controls, the bleed systems, right? the landing gear systems,
8: uh, and actually seats and cabins and seats in cabins yeah. you can predict the maintenance of a seat of a passenger seat you can and you know may not be all that useful you know, if you, you know the
9: tray table breaks and seat 35e right cuz you know, a coach seat it's pretty simple but then you have uh, those lie flat seats like for instance on JetBlue Mint or you know, the international products for American or Delta or United and those seats have Typically, a thousand parts to them, many of which are moving, many of which are electric. Right? Those seats also cost between fifty and eighty thousand dollars a pop, and they break often because people like you and I sit in them. Right? And maybe you have your phone in your pocket, and you recline into bed mode, and then the phone slips from your pocket, and then gets stuck in the middle of an actuator, and then when you try to bring your seat back up, right, which is an electronic action, right? The mechanisms in the seat pulverize your phone, right? Breaks your phone, also breaks your seat. This is my replacement iPhone because that happened to me three months ago. <laughs> right? That happens every day. So what? Essentially, what happens is when you have those issues with seats, right, they're written up. And if you take the whole history of of, of those write-ups, uh, essentially the maintenance logs and you understand where and when and why and how those things are happening over time, you could build models that predict where they're going to happen again and when they're gonna fail. With that information, you could take corrective actions to make sure that they don't fail.
8: When we were talking earlier, you mentioned bleed systems and I'm not an expert on what a bleed system is, but from what I understand, it's how you are bleeding off air to power other things from the engine, like the air conditioning, et cetera, and so on. Um, now, that sounds like a very complex thing. You can predict what's happening with bleed systems as well? Yeah,
9: absolutely. So, you know, a bleed system, not every airplane has them, right? So the 787 famously is is called a bleedless aircraft, right? But on any other jetliner flying in the world today, uh, engine uh, air or you know, air that gets compressed through the engine, a piece of that, you know, uh, uh, stream of that air, right, gets diverted from the engine flow and is then sent almost as as, as, as as the artery system through the plane to power all sorts of different function, most critical of which is the environmental controls. So you know, the cabin pressurization, also you know, the cabin heat and cooling. Um, that air gets uh, cooled by something called an AC pack because it, when it leaves the engine it's very, very hot and then it's sent through, again, like a like a ventricular system or like your artery, predicting what goes on 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 those bleed systems. Bleed systems are controlled by valves, right? How quickly those valves are opening and closing, and you you can monitor the temperature of the air that goes through those valves, and you can monitor when those valves aren't opening and closing as quickly as they should be, or if they get stuck. On a modern aircraft, when that happens, an alert will be sent to the cockpit, right, and be read by the crew. Um, and then what you do is, 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 is to build these predictive models, you take all that information that the airplane is generating and then you apply artificial intelligence algorithms, machine learning algorithms, lots of uh, high-end statistical models to, to say, okay, well, you know, if I understand the patterns in which these things fail in the past, I can extrapolate when they're gonna fail in the future.
8: So you mentioned artificial intelligence, which is just another thing that fascinates me just in general. And Robert Heinlein said, actually, never underestimate the power of human stupidity. Now, if you're doing that in terms of the amount of intelligence that's there, and, and sometimes I wonder how much intelligence we have left in the human race, how do you create artificial intelligence? That's a great question. So artificial intelligence...
9: Is a means to build computer programs, right? And you know, it's it's separate from the other means to build computer programs, which is to program a computer program. When you think about programming a computer program, you're putting together a, a recipe of instructions you know, out of control statements and if-then-else statements and loops and higher-order functions and 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 you know, execution. An artificial intelligence system leverages data and methods to detect patterns from that data to learn to execute an outcome. Right. So instead of saying do this, then this, then this, and if you see X, do Y, but if you see Y, do Z. Right. An artificial intelligence system will basically take raw data, and you'll tell it, predict for X, and then assuming you've given it enough data and enough time and again i'm being very general here it will try and predict x
8: so it's more like um, giving it data giving it a means to solve a problem and running it through a self-test
9: you can think of it absolutely like that um, the way the reason it's called artificial intelligence is because it essentially building uh, computer programs that mimic in certain limited ways the way humans think and learn, right? So a very big field in artificial intelligence, one that's uh, used in in doing predictive maintenance, is building these computer models that mimic the neurons that fire in the human brain. It's called an artificial neural network. And what's really interesting about artificial neural networks is that they're very good... Right, at solving problems through pattern detection given enough data. You don't need to necessarily tell it how to solve the problem, right? So if I was gonna take an artificial neural network and I was going to feed it with you know, years and years and years of temperature data through air temperature in the bleed system, if I was gonna feed it with vibration data and valve open time data and valve closed time data and if I asked it to predict when uh, a, a trim valve was going to fail, right, or pressure uh, regulator valve is going to fail, right, and I gave it enough data where those failures were prevalent in the data set, it would figure out what information is causal to those failures.
8: It's just amazing, and it's mind-boggling, really mind-boggling. But... But... Just as we don't necessarily know,
9: right, down to the blueprints and the architecture how the human mind works, right, we don't always know how the neural networks, the
2: artificial... Ah, what a tease. If you want to listen to the rest of this, since we're getting close to the end of the show here, we're going to try to fit in some more feedback. I'm going to have this in the show notes, and you can listen to the rest of this awesome interview that Micah had with Mark Roboff in that... Uh, place they were in i forgot what the name of it is uh in uh Maine
4: main diner or something like that
2: main diner and i just don't remember the uh the town i think i would butcher the name i of think
7: it. i think they'll tell us here in a moment it will, it'll just be up yes, to us to pronounce it correctly it's we're south uh, of portland
2: okay um waiting for micah to say something in the chat room and i uh, hope you guys don't mind, but, uh, main diner. Yeah. And wells. Well, oh, yeah, that's a tough one. Is that one. how it's pronounced? <laughs> well. <laughs> wells?
7: well, Wells, Wells, Wells. well, there seems to be some disagreement. Well or wells.
2: Yeah. Your well. choice. Wells. Wells. Okay. okay. Anyway, um, Micah, you're such a great interviewer and Mark, uh, wow. Just like, like so much good information regarding AI and stuff. And, uh, it was a awesome interview and, uh, we got through about 3 two-thirds, three-quarters of it, and I think that it's definitely well worth listening to the rest of it. And again, it'll be in the show notes, and you can listen to the whole darn thing. So thanks again for sending that in. It was awesome. Um, oh, <laughs> Micah says, you missed the best part where Mark says how pilots will become
3: redundant.
6: <gasps> oh. That's a good that's tease That's probably a good
4: to
3: <laughs> I would have lit Jeff's blue touch paper. That's
2: <laughs> well, a good His thing horse. I didn't hear that part because I probably would have uh yeah, there would have been profanity probably. So
4: I would have repeated it myself.
2: <laughs> okay. Uh so we're looking at the Liz. <laughs> Liz is such an optimist.
7: What do you think, Liz? Seventeen. She has like
2: with? so many things in this feedback folder. And I'm thinking, what?
7: We're on number. We got through like four. Six.
2: Uh, well, we we got to. We skipped around a little bit. Yeah, uh, three. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
2: three. And then you, to, six. you didn't even get to four. No, Ow. we skipped four and five, and we just played just six. six. And she has what? Nineteen in here. Seventeen. <laughs> seventeen.
7: <laughs> I think we should end with seventeen if Liz yeah. agrees, unless she wants to point us somewhere else. What do you think, Liz? I think we have to learn not
4: not to talk so much.
7: Yes, seventeen for sure.
2: Oh okay, well, yeah, we could just play yes. the feedback and just not talk.
7: Exactly. Just let it run continuously, Which and then would the end be, be like.
2: Yeah, I think it'd be kind of a boring show because yeah,
7: of, we wouldn't answer any questions really.
2: <laughs> what, what's the point? Okay, Liz says yes, seventeen for sure. Okay, this is from Rick. Rick, who? If it's from the Rick that I know, I think we're going to skip this one. <laughs> not Rick Bell. No, That's not right. Rick Bell, is it? It, I don't it, think is it is not. It is not. New to I don't ADD. know what is
7: his last uh
2: yeah. okay. his name is, but just kidding, Rick Bell. I, I love you, man. Um Hello all. Long term listener, three to four years, first time caller. <laughs> writer here. This morning I was listening to the latest episode whilst on my Oh, he's gotta be from the UK. He's not. Keep reading. He's not American. Oh he's not? No, he's oh. not from he is. Okay, whilst on my way to work, and I just wanted to say uh, hats off to Nick. Even if he is not technically retired at the time of this letter, it's close enough for government work. It was a touching send-off for someone about to embark on a new chapter in life. May it be filled with brews, balls, and billiards, if Nick goes in for that sort of thing, that is. Also, now uh, he will have time to work on compiling all those old pilot plane tales episodes into an anthology.
3: Jeez, that would be a very long recording. that Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's what he means though. Oh well, no. anyway, it's gonna happen. But it I'm sounds like a lot work of work to it? me. <laughs> yeah. Just make a book. No, I'm not gonna make a book. This part is for Steph.
2: I was intending on making it to your meetup. That you had in Salt Lake City approximately March through April. But as life would have it, I ended up coming down with a pretty terrific bug and was down for a 10 count. That said, if any of you are ever in the area again, I will do my bestest to make it out. Okay, so he's not from.
7: The well, maybe UK. he is from the UK, okay. but lives in well, Salt Lake City you, area.
2: Amer- Americans don't say whilst.
7: Yeah, but he didn't spell it correctly. I'm not oh, calling you true. out there and you're spelling Rick,
2: but. Yeah, oh, Rick. Uh. <laughs>
7: Spelling. Typo. We'll, we'll chalk that up to typo. Yeah,
2: definitely. That e made it in. It yeah. was supposed to be there. Anyway, I will do my bestest to make it out. P.S. Steph, from one jeeper to another, and if the flying community indulges me, have you ever made it to any of the jeep safaris out here? I have yet as not, but Utah has some amazing, that's all caps, jeep and off-road trails, and it's definitely amazing seeing some of the great backcountry out here. Keep up the great work. And as Nick would say, cheers. 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 Cheers.
7: No, I have I have not made it to any of the safaris out there. Um, when I lived out there, I did, in fact, have a Jeep, but it was a grossly underpowered Jeep with kind of um, puny tires. It was my little, like, you know, high school uh, Jeep that I drove around. And uh, it was fun, but definitely was not really I mean, it was off road worthy, but not the bestest off road Jeep out there. I, would <laughs> I say. see what you
2: did there. Do you like that? Yeah.
7: Mm-hmm. Um, maybe someday. Currently, uh, you know, I tend only to have one vehicle. Um, so I'm a little disinclined sometimes to take it out um, and do crazy things with it because I need it to continue to uh, provide transportation for me to and from work on a daily basis. I don't really want to, to bang it up or harm it in any way. Uh, but yeah, I agree. Utah is beautiful, um, especially southern Utah where all that uh backcountry uh rock, rock crawling stuff is that they do. It's uh, it's at least worth seeing, um, even mm. if you don't do the Jeep stuff.
2: It is beautiful, that is for sure. I almost died once, um, on a bike Oh, ride. god,
7: <laughs> at where?
2: Well, thank on a, you. On a thank bike like ride, didn't
7: in yeah. Utah, yeah, in before,
2: before I even started um, doing podcasting saved
7: yeah. us all a lot the,
2: of time no, in the 90s yeah <laughs> too bad i didn't die <laughs> that
7: would have been terribly tragic and we're very
2: Thanks glad a lot you did of stuff. Yeah, we, we gosh, gosh, you didn't,
4: it. and the podcast would suffer from that i take everything back
2: stuff <laughs> oh. okay um it's a great uh feedback thank you rick and uh, i'm sure we'll have a i would love to be out there in salt lake city for a meetup because uh I, I love that city
5: yeah, and, uh, you know, Rick. Uh, the one thing I'll add to that is, if you think the uh, the Jeep stuff is amazing out in Utah, you also need to check out some of the the amazing flying that's done out west. I would encourage mm-hmm. you to check out the the Flying Cowboys. And there's a, a modified aircraft called Draco, and all of its yes. short takeoff and landing stuff. It is an amazing aircraft.
7: He's in Utah. Um, cool thing. Cool Wait stuff. a minute,
2: Flying Cowboys. No, I saw him in um, New York City uh, near no, Times Square. No, that's Square. the
7: Naked Cowboy.
2: Oh. Yeah. Oh, Completely different Cowboys, Jeff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, Never
4: mind. And um, the fact that you're looking at Cowboys is pretty disturbing.
2: I love the Cowboys. <laughs> and they We'll like just
7: me. assume you mean the Dallas Cowboys and
2: move <laughs> yeah. on. Okay. All right. So. You know, uh, you know, Jeff, being a being a
5: Texan here, I'm a little concerned about that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm just kidding, of course. Okay. As far as you know. Um we have a lot of great stuff still left in this feedback folder that uh, Liz foolishly thought that we were going to be able to get to, including uh, Tim. He's a new listener on his journey to become a, an airline pilot. Swedish Gustav, who gave us that wonderfully generous donation, um, sent us a link to this article that we, uh, the reason why I didn't discuss it, because I know that we're going to discuss this for quite a while, an article from USA Today on, uh, quote, pilots are losing their basic flying skills. Um, yes, we have a lot of, we have opinions about that. Um, we have, uh, Greg with simulator training, Marcus with ergonomics of flight controls, uh, Dave on hacking the ILS system.com call signs, Ivor, who knows what he's going to talk about. Uh, it's going to be interesting though. I can tell you for sure. Um, and much, much more, including perhaps your Feedback. If you send us feedback at feedback at airlinepilotguy.com, you can do that, or you can use the iOS or Android app, the Airline Pilot Guy app, uh, to send us feedback. So many ways. Uh, The Airline Pilot Guy site is wonderful. It has all kinds of good information about the crew, the community, the APG store where you can get your uh, APG swag. APG Live, Uh, we have the Plain Tales uh, page, where you can find all those fantastic Plain Tales, which is the best part of the show. We have the APG Library. Uh, Our librarian, Tiffany, has put together an amazing uh, collection of wonderful uh, pieces of literature that you might want to check out. That and much, much more. And guess what? We're still and always will be on social media.
9: We
7: will. Even the social media.
2: And the social media, yeah.
7: Check it out over at (laughs) Twitter.com. Our handle there is at APG crew. Find our individual information pinned to the top of that page. We'd love to chat with you there. um, Briefly, 280 characters or less. We're not going to spend a lot of time. No, no. (laughs) no. It's not what we do.
2: No. Uh,
7: You can also find us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash airline pilot guy, all kinds of community interaction happening there. Articles being shared, people discussing things related to aviation and the aviation, uh, commercial aviation industry. Uh, You can also now find us on Instagram. Uh, Oh gosh, I think the handle is the same as the Twitter one at APG Crew. I've added a few things there, and I plan to do some more. So
2: on the Insta, keep
7: watching on the Insta, the Iggy, the IG
2: didn't they try to do that make it insta and then nobody went everybody went went uh, Instagram. instagram Instagram. that sounds dorky okay uh excellent and we also are on the quasi social social media platform where all the apg slackers hang out and it's called slack and hillel is going to tell us about that
5: apg listeners please join us on our slack team Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation that's Hillel spelled H-I-1-1-E-1 Hotel India 1-1 one one, Echo 1 and see you in Slack
2: thanks Hillel now get back to the bathroom and that is it for today's show thank you so much everyone for listening for subscribing for downloading all those things you do to listen to us every week uh, review us if you'd like uh, and and uh, we love you and we're glad that you love us. And speaking of love, wow, we have a lot of love for our producer, Liz Piper Ooh, in Toronto. Brilliant. She does brilliant. such a great job of really helping mostly me, uh, pre- you know, prepare this whole thing. So she makes me look good and I really love her for that. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility and tailwinds. Talons, Douglas.
7: Cheers, y'all.
4: Cheers, everybody. Aloha. Thanks, guys.
0: Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy.
5: Good day.